When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. What a week. What a week. I prefer to be woken up with loud shouting. <laughs> He's trying to be gentle. That is the only way to wake Caitlin up, right? <laughs> loud. Get out of bed. Hey, I don't want to yell at people at home, but get out of bed. It's Friday, November 11th, and we still don't know who's in control of Congress. It is still up in the air. So this morning, votes are still being counted in Nevada, in Arizona, where two critical Senate races remain undecided. Along with the suspense, it comes the expense, I'm going to explain. We're following the money to figure out just how much cash was spent on these races and which party spent more. That's right. We also have new CNN reporting on Donald Trump's expected announcement that he is running again. Some Trump family members are signaling, though, they don't really want to be involved if that's the case. And also... Every single parent, listen up to this, a deadly mix. Half of the United States is experiencing high or very high respiratory illness activity that includes RSV, flu, COVID. Our Dr. Sanjay Gupta is live to join us on that this hour. But first, it is still Election Day and some. John Berman is here to break down the key races. It is still undecided at this hour who is going to control Congress. I'm starting to get deja vu standing at this wall with you. I know, and I apologize. Caitlin walks over and I said, don't bother me. I'm doing math. The math is hard for me to do all this. So hang on. Let me just tell you where we are right now. We're watching. Because it's looking better for Democrats in the Senate right now. It might be. We are watching, of course, Nevada and Arizona. If either party manages to win both of these states, then we don't even need to wait until the runoff in Georgia to figure out who wins control of Congress. Let's see where we are in Nevada. Okay, so now Adam Laxdahl, the Republican, leads the incumbent Democrat, Catherine Cortez Masto, but just by 9,000 votes. Let me see if I can tell you where this was yesterday when we were talking most of the day. Most of the day yesterday, Laxdahl was ahead by 15,000, maybe more. Now the lead has shrunk to about 9,000. Why? There were more votes counted in Washoe County yesterday. About 18,000 in Catherine Cortez Masto netted about 60% of that. And there were more votes counted in Clark reported yesterday. 12,000 votes counted in Clark last night. Catherine Cortez Masto won 61% of that. I give you these percentages because... The math here is interesting. Okay, let's go to a blank blackboard here. We think that there are roughly, let me get this out. We think there are roughly 95,000 votes left to count okay, in, in the, the state, state of Nevada. In the whole state, 95,000 votes. If she can win 60% of that, which she was yesterday in Washoe and Clark County, she would net, net 19,000 votes. 19,000 votes, which, even with my math skills, I know change that. is more than the <laughs> 9,000 votes. Now, I don't know that this will happen. I just want to give you directionally what could happen if the margins stay the same. We know there's 50,000 votes left to count in Clark County. What we don't know is if she will be able to maintain that type of margin there. 
In Arizona, a little bit of a different story. Mark Kelly, the Democrat, has expanded his lead as more vote counting has been recorded, typically in Maricopa County, especially in Maricopa County and down here in Pima County. He had been at about 85,000 yesterday. Now he's at 115,000. About 540,000 votes left to count. That's a lot. It's a lot of runway. Yeah. Now, if, if that vote skews Republican and Blake Masters were to win 60% of that, I'm not going to write this down for you, he could get close to overtaking Mark Kelly. But one thing I want to point out that people haven't focused on, there are about three counties that are almost 100% in. They're all Republican counties. Gila County right here, just west of Phoenix, you can see 95% and it may actually be a little more. Mark Kelly is outperforming Joe Biden, what Joe Biden did there, by seven and a half points. And obviously you, Biden won Arizona. Barely, but he won it. You go just west to Graham County, Mark Kelly is outperforming Joe Biden by seven points here in one more county, West Greenlee, where the, most of the vote is in. It's tiny, it's tiny, but he's outperforming what Joe Biden did there right now by 17 points. So, it's yes, remarkable. we have to wait for all this to come in. There is enough room for Blake Masters if he does really well in the rest of this vote to overtake Mark Kelly. But in the places where we've seen almost everything, Mark Kelly is doing more than what he needs to do to win. So it seems like that is somewhere where Democrats are waking up this morning. That's good news. 540,000 votes left to count in Arizona. How many left in Nevada again? 95,000. And how long is that going to take? Because my dad called me yesterday after the show, and he was like, why is this taking so long? But I said, it's normal. This happened two years ago. It's not anything suspicious. But he wanted to know how long it's going to take. Different reasons in different states. In Nevada, the law says that any ballot postmarked by Election Day can, can be received until actually tomorrow, and they will be counted. Okay. So they're just waiting for all those to come in as they continue to process. Arizona, it just takes some time. They get the votes in. They, they match the signatures with the things on file. They were slow two years ago. They're slow this time. But Arizona, no one had a problem with Arizona doing this until about two years ago when people called results into question. This right. is just how Arizona's done it for some time. Right, so it's normal. And it's going to take a while. It could take another week to find out in Arizona. Okay, well, we'll order you some breakfast. Yeah, what, do you, you. what do you Appreciate want? It. <laughs> John Berman, thank you. Berman's good at math, and he's <laughs> Magic Berman at the it's Magic more, Wall. Time. I have to prepare the math. I can't read my handwriting. There's a lot of challenges here. We are oh grateful gosh, for you. you. want some cheese to go with that wine? Oh, <laughs> oh come yeah, on. Absolutely. Math was not part of the job when we signed up to do journalism. I know. Okay? Be nice to Berman. We desperately need him at that wall. Okay, guys, thank you. We'll get to you soon. Well, let's talk about Georgia with the Georgia runoff campaign between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker underway so much money is pouring into this state in the past 24 hours both parties outside groups announced investments in this race that could determine the balance of power in the senate staggering amounts of money were spent in the battle in other battleground states as well some republicans are now questioning though whether it was enough let's go to rahel solomon she's been following the money she joins us now you know when you have some of these states with these really tight margins there's a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking saying, oh, if we just poured a little more into those states. Yeah, a lots of money and a lots of money to follow, Poppy. So let's first look at the big picture. So let's start with across the top five Senate races for this election cycle. Both parties, campaigns and outside groups included, combined to spend over $1 billion. Let that sink in at the top of the list there. My home state of Pennsylvania, $264 million. So Democrat John Fetterman here 
defeating Republican Mehmet Oz. Republicans outspending Democrats by $22 million in Pennsylvania. Let's go north to New Hampshire, where Democrat Maggie Hassan defeated Don Bullduck. Dems outspending Republicans by $11 million here. And then, of course, to the all-important state of Georgia, where, as John mentioned, the race between Warnock and Walker is heading down to a runoff, while Democrats spent $20 million more than Republicans here. Poppy? Can you talk about what the races that are still undecided at this hour and what we know about the money in those? Okay, so let's start with Arizona, where, as John pointed out, Democrat Senate Mark Kelly, senator, still maintaining his edge over Blake Masters there, the Republican candidate. Democrats here outspent Republicans by $46 million. In Nevada, where Republican Adam Laxalt is leading Democrat Catherine Cortez Masto, while Democrats outspent Republicans here by $17 million. And let's look at the spending advantage. It's the same information, but on the map, sort of a different perspective. You can see the breakdown of those states I mentioned, plus Ohio. So the Democrats outspending Republicans in state like, states like Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, New Hampshire, Republicans uh, outspending Democrats in states like Ohio and Pennsylvania. But uh, Poppy, for folks at home who perhaps have ad campaign fatigue, this is why. It was a lot of money, a lot of ads. And of course, for our friends in Georgia, they have a few more weeks of it. Yeah, a few more weeks and a whole lot of ads to come. Thank you for following the money, Rahel. Mm -hmm. So there is some new reporting out this morning that uh, not everyone in the Trump family is on board with a potential 2024 run. Comes as a family will be gathering this weekend at Mar-a-Lago for Tiffany Trump's wedding. CNN's White House correspondent Kate Bennett joins us now with her new reporting. Kate, uh, what's up? What family members? Well, you know, the two that we saw the most during Donald Trump's first run in the White House, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner, her husband, have no intention of returning should there be a second campaign of Donald Trump for the White House. Uh, I spoke to a number of people who said they have very little interest in anything to do with Washington or the White House at this stage in their lives. You know, and this was the couple who was involved in everything in the White House from, you know, Middle East policy to, to COVID-19 response. Um, Jared was the gatekeeper for Donald Donald Trump. Ivanka was his most trusted advisor. Um, so this is going to be a shift for Donald Trump if he does run again to have his own family members uh, not be on board here. Now, the family member that is on board, of course, is Donald Trump Jr., who has, if anything, expanded his political uh, footprint uh, in the years since Donald Trump has left the White House. His girlfriend, Kimberly Guilfoyle, also is involved. The brother, Eric Trump, will be more like Don Jr. Uh, I'm told that Don Jr. will campaign for his dad, will be out there. Uh, but certainly, you know, we didn't see Ivanka Trump even in the midterms. Uh, this is not something that she wants to do anymore. And, and, you know, I think at this point, the family is divided in that sense over Donald Trump's future. While he remains obsessed with getting back in the White House um, and, you know, thinking this was not a fair election the last time, his children feel opposite. All right. Kate Bennett, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Thanks. New numbers this morning show an alarming rise in respiratory illnesses all across the nation. Plus, it is pure chaos inside Twitter right now. But Elon Musk's new company is not the only tech giant that is suffering. What is going on with social media? We'll talk about that next. A lot of people losing their jobs. So scary.
Over on Twitter, Elon Musk is uh, laying people off, his key employees are quitting, and in his first mail to his remaining employees today, he announced a ban on working remotely, he told them to prepare for difficult times ahead and plan to be at the office at least 40 hours a week, effective immediately. All of a sudden, Mr. Driverless Car needs humans in the seats. <laughs> One of the Twitter executives who quit is the chief information security office officer, Leah Kistner. Kistner said it was a, quote, hard decision to leave the company, but Kistner did not say why. Kistner's departure comes as chaos has been erupting inside the company since Elon Musk took over. It's hard to really summarize what has consumed Twitter in just the last several days alone. I'm going to try. Of course, Musk fired half of Twitter's employees, some of them by mistake. Many of them sued. Some were asked to come back. He cracked down on users who were impersonating him, talking about suspending those who do impersonate people. He said people need to pay for that blue check mark. And now in his first mass call with employees, he declared an end to remote work. The real kicker, he also said that he could not rule out bankruptcy. One of the recently laid off Twitter employees told CNN's Oliver Darcy, it feels like the beginning of the end. Yeah, you got all of this. Along with mass, massive layoffs that we're hearing about at Meta, that's raising a bunch of questions. Are we witnessing the fall of American social media? You know who can answer that? CNN's media analyst and Axios media reporter, Sarah Fisher. Sarah, good morning to you. When you were here the other day and I you know, talked all these changes, as you were walking off the set, I said... Wait, wait, is this, what is happening in social media? Are people not interested anymore? I can't remember the last time I was on Facebook and I don't go on Twitter that much, blah, blah, blah. And you said, this is possibly the downfall of social media. What? I think so, Don. I think part of it is that Gen Z is demanding a new experience from the ones that you and I grew up with. You know, in the early days of social media about 20 years ago, which grew on the backbone of the rise of the smartphone, it was all about connecting you to your closest friends, but in sort of a public way, you know, publicly posting to people's Facebook walls, publicly messaging people's MySpace boards. What's different now is that Gen Z is so much more conscious of privacy and authenticity. And so what they're looking for is an experience that doesn't necessarily spill out their personal relationships publicly, that, that brings them in privately. That's why you're seeing a huge rise in encrypted messaging apps, and you're also seeing a huge rise in apps like TikTok that unite people not based on their close friends, but actually unites people based off of shared interests. So it's not like the it's sort of show-off apps. I, I find like, you know, a lot of these are just, here's what I'm doing, and I got to get the picture really perfectly so that everybody can think my life is perfect and great vacations and what have you. So we're moving away from being pretty and cute and showing off and flexing on social media? I mean, I think Gen Z wants people to be much more authentic. And now oh. there are apps like TikTok that prioritize talent. You'll see some of the stuff that goes really viral on TikTok are beauty experts, people who are showing you how to do makeup, are dancers, are comedians. There is a market for people who want to show off, but it's a genuine talent. What's no longer as cool for Gen Z is just showing off your cool vacation or showing off the cool things you did with ah. your friends to the public. What they want to do is showcase that only to their really close friends. Mm -hmm. 
And that's why apps like Be Real, where you know users can take one photo a day that's meant to showcase what they're actually doing, are skyrocketing yeah. in popularity. My my very much cooler 26-year-old producer came in my office the other day and she's like, quick, let's take a picture for Be Real. And I'm like, this isn't real. I have way too much TV makeup on. <laughs> but she was introducing me to the new platform. But I, I, I wonder what your take is on what I think has changed also is insiders coming out and speaking out. Like it happened with Big Tobacco and now it's happening with social media. So Twitter... Remember the whistleblower recently? And then let's play this sound to remind people of Francis Haugen, who was a product manager at Facebook and was a whistleblower and testified before Congress. And here's what she said about the platform. Here it is. I saw Facebook repeatedly encounter conflicts between its own profits and our safety. Facebook consistently resolved these conflicts in favor of its own profits. The result has been more division, more harm, more lies, more threats, and more combat. In some cases, this, this dangerous online talk has led to actual violence that harms and even kills people. Harms and even kills people. Mark Zuckerberg said in response, just want to put it out there, that misrepresents our work and our motives. But isn't it an inflection point when the people on the inside doing the work come out and say, here's what's been happening? Yes, absolutely. And I think the reason that they're coming out and saying that is because these social media apps grew based on targeted advertising, which meant that you, the user of these free apps, was actually the product. Your data was being used to target ads so that they could make more money. And I think what people are coming out and saying is that that model is not good for privacy, and it's also not good for things like misinformation and democracy. And so right now, there's a push to get more user data to be anonymized, meaning they're not tracking you individually, Poppy, or me individually. They're tracking us as cohorts based out of our interests. And I think that's sort of what the future of social media is going to look like. And any social network that's not going to be thinking about privacy first is going to continue to have more whistleblowers and more people speak out. Mm. Sarah, uh, two things. One, one of the things that Elon Musk has suggested when it comes to Twitter that I personally think is a great idea is encrypted DMs. He has talked about getting rid of the use that you're talking about of going to those third-party party apps like mm. Signal and whatnot. A lot of reporters obviously use that to communicate with sources. The other thing, though, that you said during the break that really interested me is this idea of these megawatt personalities coming out of Silicon Valley and how the appetite, I guess, is changing for them because we were obsessed with them recently, the royal we, but, but it seems to be changing to a degree. Totally. So on encrypted apps, that's the future. And I think that more people are nervous about their communications. And so if you're not encrypted end to end, you're going to see users leave your world. And I think you're right. That's why Elon Musk wants to go this way. He's also thinking about payments. And in introducing payments to the app, you have to be encrypted for privacy reasons. But to your point, I think we as a society have held up these Silicon Valley entrepreneurs almost like gods. They've created these massive companies, some of which have been the fastest growing companies in the world for the past past decade. But what we're starting to see now is that they're just humans. They're just regular everyday people. And we need to hold them to the same exact levers that we're holding other types of business leaders and world leaders, which means a lot of world scrutiny, a lot of lawmakers are going to look into them. We noted yesterday that President Biden says that we shouldn't not be looking at Elon Musk's foreign relationships. I think the tide has turned where we no longer look at these entrepreneurs, these Silicon Valley leaders as gods, and we see them as people, normal people that need to be reckoned with. Mm -hmm. I, I think that we got to uh, go, Sarah, but I just think like you, to the point that you were making just before with Poppy, I think young people are sick of all of the trolling and the vitriol and like going on, you know, you're fat, you're ugly. I can't stand how, what you think politically. It's, 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 
I hope that they are over it because it's so toxic and so disgusting. So if a couple of social media sites fall because young people are not interested in that or at least have to change their business model, I say amen. I hear it. Do it. I hear it, but I'm because I'm worried about what it would mean for our children, my kids, if it doesn't change. But I think about all those people employed at those companies. No, like, but if they have to rejigger, it's a big important communication tool. Twitter is is yeah. huge that people use globally. But if you to, do to it talk. correctly, and if you if if you you know, attract the people, you more people by being more positive or doing what young people want you to do, I don't think they'll lose their jobs. They may, you know, gain some jobs. I think, people I think are tired trust of has been here. lost here. Trust has been completely lost here. Yeah. You're completely right. And I think the only way that these apps are going to survive is if they rebrand themselves. That's why Snapchat mm-hmm. calls itself a camera company. That's why TikTok says it's an entertainment platform. Mm. That's why Facebook is now the metaverse. It's now meta. Because they know that they've lost trust. And unless they rebrand themselves, they're not going to get it back. Sarah, You're a right treasure. Fascinating it. conversation. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks. She's so good. Thanks. A handful of undecided races still razor-thin margins this morning. John Avlon is here with a breakdown of the history of tight matchups. You know who else is here? There's Harry Anton. Uh, Data! I think he lives over there. What's next in Georgia's runoff election? And he's thinking he's going to win. We need to prove him wrong and let him get out of that office. I'm going to need you to stick with me for four more weeks. Can we do that? More CNN this morning to come after the break. He was dying to go into overtime because if you watch what he was saying, we're going to go in a runoff. And I was saying, no, I want to beat you outright. And if he want to go in a runoff with me, I'm saying, you bring it, Holmes. You bring it because I was built for this. You have to admit... And I did warn y'all that we might be spending Thanksgiving together. And here we are. So I'm going to need you to stick with me for four more weeks. I think it's fair to say that is a hotly contested Senate race in Georgia. Well, it's headed for a runoff election right now. Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and his Republican challenger, Herschel Walker, both failed to win the outright majority needed to take home a victory on Tuesday. Now, there's a chance Georgia voters could end up deciding which party wins the majority in the U.S. Senate again. CNN senior data reporter Harry Enton is at the battleground desk for us this morning. So how is this going to go down? What's going to go down on December 6th here, Harry? I feel like it's deja vu all over again, right, as Yogi Berra once said. Look, a Georgia runoff rules are pretty, are pretty simple. Uh, obviously, we had the election on, uh, just on Tuesday. Then we're going to have a runoff between the top two vote-getters, Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. Why? Because no candidate reached a majority, 50-plus one of the vote, in the November election. The new election, the runoff occurs on December 6th. Uh, Runoffs have generally been a system in Georgia that was developed in the 1960s. It was actually developed by white lawmakers who wanted to assure that the white majority population would be ultimately able to to decide who their elected officials would be because they were afraid that black voters could win in a plurality, uh, could elect their candidates in plurality back in the 60s uh, because of perhaps a divided field among white voters. Obviously, today, uh, that's not necessarily the case as we have two black candidates, but it is, it is somewhat of a relic from a, a former time, Don. Not the first time that Georgia Senate race was decided in a runoff. 
No, it, it's not the first time. Uh, you know, if you go back since 1992, for example, we've had a bunch of runoffs statewide. Uh, Republicans have actually tended to do better on the whole. They've won seven or they've done better in the runoff seven out of 10 times. Uh, from round one to the runoff. Of course, the 2021 runoffs were an exception to that, where both the Democrats actually did better. Why was 2021 different than those other years? I think the turnout gives you a pretty good indication, right? Take a look at this. This is Senate runoff turnout as a percentage of the general election turnout. Normally, runoff turnout trails by a significant margin what was happening in those general elections. But in the 2021 Senate runoffs, it basically matched. It was only slightly lower, Don, now, why was it slightly lower? It was because of black turnout. Blacks have traditionally in Georgia turned out in significantly lower numbers in the runoffs than they did in the general election. But what occurred in 2021 was the exact opposite. The vote in majority black counties was actually larger compared to white counties when you looked at the runoff turnout compared to the general election. Obviously, we don't know that that's going to happen this time, but obviously that's something that Democrats would love to see. Now, I think there's a big question ultimately, though, what will Georgia actually be determining? Will it be determining control of the United States Senate? Or could it be the case that both Arizona and Nevada go to one party, in which case it wouldn't be occurring? Now, if that is in fact the case, let's just say that Georgia is not determining control of the United States Senate. I think that's welcome news for Democrats. Because in our exit poll, we asked, what's the importance of party control to your vote in the United, for your vote for the United States Senate? If it was not important, if you didn't care who controlled the United States Senate, look at that. Raphael Warnock had a large advantage over Herschel Walker, which I think gets back to the whole idea of candidate quality, right? A lot of Republicans voted for Herschel Walker, even if they didn't like him, because they wanted to assure Republicans get control. If control of the Senate isn't on the line, maybe some of those Republicans sit out, Don. Hmm. Ooh, that's... I can't even absorb all that this morning. <laughs> I'm sorry, of, Don. It would save a lot of fundraising money if the, if the Georgia race doesn't determine who controls the Senate. Uh, no. It's going to be very expensive. A, the, and and we the, get, the it saved me a lot of sleep, too. It would yeah. save me a lot no, of sleep. No, but I, the, she's right. The money. The sleep, we don't care about. She's but always. Right. You don't care about me? <laughs> yeah. All right, Harry, see you. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, now to Colorado's third congressional district. Congresswoman Lauren Boebert is only 1,100 votes ahead this morning of her challenger, her Democratic challenger, Adam Frisch. It was never, by the way, folks, expected to be this close. 24 hours ago, the race was separated by just 64 votes. In Nevada Senate race, Republican Adam Laxalt is ahead by just over 8,000 votes. Those races are close, but how do they compare to the closest races in U.S. history? Here for a trip down memory lane. <laughs> resident historian and senior political analyst John Avalon. John Avalon. John, John, is that what you call him? I call him John Avalon. <laughs> so the only human being who does that. I will never, I will never call you John Avalon. I appreciate that. But I'll also never be able to get it out of my head. Okay, talk to us about nail biters. So look, I mean, let's just get some perspective on, on our problems, shall we? I mean, look, decisions are made in democracy by people who show up, and sometimes these races can be incredibly close. So as close as this race is right now, out low in Boebert and Nevada, take a look at some of the close race in history. Start with this number, 537. 537. That's the infamous number that George W. Bush won Florida by in 2000. So that was the presidency, folks. And I'll also note uh, Ralph Nader, the Green Party third candidate, won 98,000 votes in Florida that year. So it's a reminder, every vote counts. But that's, that's a big margin compared to some of these other ones. How about six? Six. Whoa. Yeah, that's the right. That was the margin in 2020 for Iowa's second district house seat, won by uh, Miller Meeks, who still is serves in Congress. Six votes, folks. Unbelievably close. Still closer. The closest race in U.S. Senate history. Two votes 
1974, New Hampshire. This was a revelation to me. This took months, almost a year to litigate through, through its final iteration. Can you imagine if that happened now? Oh, <laughs> it was stolen. Town. It was crazy a, town. Yeah. But you know what you don't get close to then? What? Zero. <laughs> Zero. What? Yeah. So check this out. 2017, this is relatively recent history. Virginia House of Delegates oh, tied. I remember this. And not only did it tie, the parties were evenly split. So control of the state, the, the delegate house came from pulling I a name out that. of a bowl. CNN carried it live. Name out of a bowl. Wait, I remember that. Basically, it's basically, it's a point toss. We did. When you learn about these rules, it's so funny. It's the same with like New Hampshire and Iowa and the caucuses of like coin flips and whatnot. Okay, but one question I have is, Tuesday night, mm. Kevin McCarthy came out and he said, when you wake up in the morning, there is going to be a Republican House majority. It has now been three days since then, if I'm counting correctly. We still don't know who is going to have the majority of the House. So I think looking at these numbers, the question that people have, like my dad who's watching this closely, what's the takeaway here? What does this mean for what we could potentially see this week? The big takeaway for democracy is always the same. Every vote counts. If you get cynical, and say that your vote doesn't matter, you could have made a difference in any of these races from the U.S. presidency down to your state house. And a lot of the local races we don't pay as much attention to, but those can have enormous impacts on people's lives as well. So again, democracy means decisions are made by people who show up. Yeah. Every vote counts. And this is just vivid examples of that. Can you imagine if you were the one person who said, oh, I'm not, not going to go vote right now because whatever. Because I, I got to rearrange <laughs> then, my soft drawer. And then you're yeah. the reason they have to pull the thing out. Self-government's worth your time. Also the power of state houses, state legislatures. Huge. Votes on that level. By the way, I think we need Caitlin's dad. We need dad to come on the program. Oh, yes, please. no. At some he point. would love that, but no. I'm <laughs> that down. You're welcome any day. Excuse me. John, we, producers, can we please make that happen. And obviously your mom. <laughs> obviously. Okay, um, John Avalon. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Thanks, John Avalon. I had a very, uh, really a hard turn here, but we have to tell you about what is a very, very upsetting discovery. This is at the construction site of yeah. the Obama Presidential Center in Chicago. What police are telling us this morning? And a judge just delivered a blow to President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. We'll tell you what it means for the more than 26 million people who have already applied for loan relief. Well, this morning, construction at the Obama Presidential Center in Chicago is suspended after a noose was discovered at the site on Thursday. Straight now to CNN's Adrian brought us live for us in Jackson Park, Illinois. Good evening to and good morning to you. Have the police found any leads to this, Adrian? Don, good morning to you. At this hour, investigators don't have any leads. If they do, they haven't shared them with us, at least not yet. And this morning, construction has come to a halt here in Hyde Park. Construction temporarily halted on the Obama Presidential Center in Chicago after a noose was found at the site. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker condemning the hateful act, tweeting, quote, The noose is more than a symbol of racism. It is a heart-stopping reminder of the violence and terror inflicted on black Americans for centuries. Lakeside Alliance, a joint venture of construction companies working on the center, said in a statement, it reported the incident to police and have a, quote, zero tolerance for any form of bias or hate on our work site. The Chicago Police Department says it is investigating the matter. 
The Obama Foundation released a statement writing, quote, this shameless act of cowardice and hate is designed to get attention and divide us. My experience in Chicago made me believe in the power of place and the power of people. This is not the first setback the project has faced since it was announced in 2015. It was slowed by lawsuits and complaints from the community. Environmentalists brought a lawsuit to prevent the center from using Jackson Park, taking issue with public land use for a private project. A federal judge dismissed the suit in 2019. The substantial investment in the South Side will help make the neighborhood where we call home a destination for the entire world. The project will be run by the Obama Foundation, breaking with all other presidential libraries, which are run by the National Archives. The Obama Presidential Center finally broke ground last September. We are about to break ground on what will be the world's premier institution for developing civic leaders across fields, across disciplines, and yes, across the political spectrum. And there is a reward on the table to the tune of $100,000. That is for information leading to the, arrest, to the arrest of the person or group responsible for placing that alleged noose on this construction site. Still unclear where it was exactly found on, and it's also unclear when construction will resume here. Don? All right, Adrian Broadus, thank you so much this morning. New this morning, we are learning Russian forces have withdrawn from Ukraine's Kherson region west of the Dnipro River. The latest straight ahead. Plus, as respiratory illness cases rise across the nation, there's this chilling video that shows the dramatic rescue of a baby who is suffering from the virus. We have Sanjay Gupta here. Stay with us. Take a look at this. This is really remarkable body camera video that shows two Kansas City police officers responding to a call about a one-month-old baby who stopped breathing. She was believed to be suffering from RSV, that is the respiratory illness that is really surging across the country. Come on. There she goes. Come on. Come on. There you go. Come on. Come on. Come on. Let me see. Hold her up. Let's see. I could. I could. She's breathing now. She is breathing. Hold her over. Let's see. If there's an obstruction. Thank goodness. Baby Camilla, seen here with her hero, is doing well this morning. We're happy to tell you that. Public health experts describe this RSV season as unprecedented. Let's bring in our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, who joins us now. It is so terrifying. It is so terrifying. Why is it happening so much? I mean that. That, that video is, is incredible to watch. I mean, it just it, it does sort of remind you of just how serious this can be, um, but rare, thankfully, to get to that point. There are there are clues that parents can have. It, it's sometimes difficult to assess when a young child baby is starting to have difficulty breathing. And so by the time parents sometimes recognize it, it can be pretty far along. So there, there are some clues, you know, when, when you're looking at your baby's breathing patterns overall, you know, you're going to know your, your parents, your, your baby's breathing pattern the best. But if there's differences, uh, different noises that they're making with breathing, if they're starting to use different muscles 
uh, that may be a sign that they are struggling to breathe. If obviously you're seeing their skin turn purple, that's a sign that they're not getting enough oxygen overall to their body. Let, let, let me show you some, some videos of what this looks like in real life. Some of this is sometimes hard to watch, but the point is that it can be subtle. Uh, if you're seeing a baby start to breathe with their abdominal muscles, abdominal breathing, that's a sign that they could be struggling to breathe. Also, when you see the whole body starting to move, for example, head bopping with, with breathing, that can also be a sign that the baby is actually, baby looks comfortable, right? But that can be a sign that the baby's actually having trouble breathing because they're starting to activate all these other muscles simply to breathe in and breathe out. Again, these are rare situations. I don't wanna frighten people. Even with RSV, most children are going to be just fine, but, the, but you gotta look for those early clues. It is painful to watch that. My, I just, the, here's a question, because it's I tough. think, it, Sanjay, um, doctors are saying that this season is gonna be really unprecedented. So what, to prevent that, what can parents do? What are doctors seeing here that says that, and what can parents do? Well, I, I think the way to sort of look at the, you got three viruses, respiratory viruses that are all sort of colliding at the same time. You have flu, you have RSV, and you still have COVID, uh, which is out there. So that's part of the issue. When you look at flu specifically, I think what we're seeing is we're seeing an earlier season with very big numbers. There's about half the country, 22 states, where they're seeing really high levels of flu now. Uh, primarily concentrated in that maroon area in, in the southeast. But just as we've been talking about COVID uh, the past couple of years, you, you will likely see a wave of this sort of moving from one part of the country to another part of the country. If we look at the numbers specifically, and again, you know, we typically see these numbers a little later in the year. The week of October 22nd, uh, we had, you saw the, the you know, close to 900,000 cases of flu um, a lot, but then the next week almost doubled it. And then the week after that, this most recent week, it went up by uh, more than a million cases. So these are very large numbers very early in the season. That's one of the big concerns. Also, you know, if you, if you start to look around the world, for example, uh, you look at Australia. We, and we always look at Australia because the Southern Hemisphere is going to have their flu season earlier. Now, we, what we did was we compared five years. Maybe a little bit hard for you to see on that screen there. But the red, the red graph is what's happened this most recent flu season. It's a higher peak, and it's earlier as compared to years past. That's a good signature of what's likely to be happening here. Earlier and a overall larger peak. By the end of the season, the overall number of cases may be the same as years past, mm -hmm. but they're clustering a lot of them up front. Huh. One thing that was helpful for me when our son was sick a few weeks ago is we immediately took him to the doctor and they can test for RSV. I didn't know that, Sanjay, but that was just helpful for parents to know that you can know what's going on at least and maybe take him a little earlier this season just since, you know, there's so much risk. Thanks, Sanjay. So, thank Appreciate you. it. Thank you, Sanjay. Thank you, much. you got it. Turning back to the election, election officials in Arizona's Maricopa County are saying this morning about 350,000 ballots still need to be counted there. So when will we get the actual numbers? We'll take you live to Phoenix. And ahead, you're not going to miss this. You, well, you know the person on the left, the guy on the right, who cares? But this is my interview with Whoopi Goldberg, the head of her new movie about the life and legacy of Emmett Till. People think they know the story. Black folks know the story. Not a lot of black women know it because they didn't have to. But young black men who were my brother's age all knew this story because that was the caution. 
Don't let ha what happened to Emmett Till happen to you. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. It has been two days since the midterm elections and the big political story today is that there is no political story today. Results could come in at any time. So CBS News has given me this midterms buzzer, okay? And they promised this will go off. This will start vibrating as soon. Yeah. We, we acquired this. We acquired this technology from the Cheesecake Factory. This will vibrate as soon as our democracy is ready or my jalapeno poppers, whichever comes first. Hold on, hold on. What's that? What? That, oh, my buzzer. That's my buzzer going off. Do we have, do we have House or Senate results? Oh, even better. My jalapeno poppers. This is going to change the balance of power in my tum-tum. <laughs> I think that is my favorite thing. That just made me hungry. That he's ever done. I think we found a new way for Wolf to do the key race alert. Yes. <laughs> we, uh, maybe we can hand them out to our, our viewers Where is our home. buzzer? It's such a good idea. It's uh, this, right? <laughs> that made my day. Good morning, everyone. Friday, November 11th, and a lot to get to this morning, right? A lot. Control of Congress, as you just heard. Still in question, the votes keep trickling in, with some races tightening, others widening. In the House, Republicans are inching toward the 218 seats they need to take control, although Democrats still have a narrow, very narrow, long-shot path to victory there. In the Senate, three races remain undecided. If either party can lay claim to both, Arizona and Nevada, the chamber belongs to them. But Arizona, still too close to call when it comes to that Senate race. Democrats are waking up a teensy tiny bit more hopeful after the latest votes that were counted did help incumbent Democrat Mark Kelly widen his lead over the Republican candidate Blake Masters. The Arizona's governor's race is also still close to call and it's still undecided. The Democrat Katie Hobbs has extended her narrow lead over Carrie Lake, who is an election denier, after the latest updates of votes there. More than half a million votes still need to be counted, though, in Arizona. And Maricopa County alone estimates it's got about as many as 350,000 remaining ballots to tabulate. So let's go to Don and John at the Magic Wall as we are waiting on what these numbers are going to look like and how long it is going to take to do this counting. I'm over here in Berman territory. Good morning, sir. Where do things stand? So, you know, Poppy said the Democrats have a narrow path. Right. A very narrow path to maybe keeping the House. Right now, of the races that have been called, Republicans hold 211 seats, Democrats 190 seats, 98 seats. There are 26 districts that still have yet to be called. Republicans would need to win seven of them to take control of the House. Democrats would need to win 20 of them to keep control of the House. Where are these 26 races right now? Republicans lead in 11. They need seven. Democrats lead in 15. They need 20. Could Democrats get those five seats? Could they turn five of these red seats blue? 
maybe it's a tall order, but maybe let's look at them one by one here. Democrats need five seats. In Maryland, Maryland's 6th Congressional District over here, right now, the Republican is actually leading, but this is a race that looks pretty good for the Democrats. There is still vote to be counted in Montgomery County, which is heavily Democratic. So for argument's sake, I'm just trying to show you how Democrats could do this. For argument's sake, let's say they do pick up that seat. Okay, that's one. Let's keep going. This is Colorado. Everyone's been talking about the Colorado 3rd Congressional District. This is Lauren Boebert. She's now pulled ahead mm -hmm. by 1,000-plus votes. As more votes come in, she's actually extended her lead. But there are more votes out there. Let's say Adam Frisch was able to turn this around. So we'll give that to the Democrats in this hypothetical count. If they were able to turn that, that's two seats. Where it gets really interesting is California. A lot of races in California and a lot of vote left mm -hmm. to count there. Let's dig in a little bit. There's this seat here, just 45% reported. There's a 10,000 vote margin, so maybe that could flip. That's one in California. This race is really close. This is only separated by 260 votes, 44%, and that would be two races in California. And let's go down here. I'll show you a race that races pretty close. In the south, you can see Ken Calvert. He is ahead there by about 1,200 votes, 43%. So that would be three. Three in California, let's write that down. I said they needed five, and that would be one, two, three, four, five. That would get Democrats there. It's a very narrow path. They're yelling at me in the control to talk about the Senate. All right. Very quickly, Nevada right now, Adam Laxdahl, his lead, the Republicans' lead, shrunk overnight as they counted more votes in Washoe yeah. and Clark County. 95,000 votes left to count. If the percentages stay the same that they have for Catherine Cortez Masto, she has a chance to overtake Adam Laxalt. And in Arizona, Mark Kelly leads by 115,000 votes. Blake Masters trailing. There's about 540,000 votes left. We just don't know. It depends on the shape of that vote. Some 340,000 votes left to count in Maricopa County, including a lot of votes that were handed in on Election Day, which do skew Republican. But Mark Kelly's got a pretty sizable lead there. Democrats kind of waking up with a smile in Arizona. I don't know how you keep track of all this, but can you imagine that it, the scenario that you had before the Senate, if that played out, that would it's, just be crazy. With the House, I wanted to point yeah. I wanted to show how Democrats could do it. It's yeah. not the most likely scenario, but, but there is still there is a path. A, yeah, there's a path. Thank you, John Berman. Well, let's get now to Josh Campbell, who is in Phoenix outside the Maricopa County Election Center. Good morning to you. Are we hearing anything from the candidates while they're in limbo here? They are waiting, uh, Don, and you know, obviously we're getting a lot of optimism from all four of the key major candidates here, as uh, Berman was just discussing in this uh, race between Senator Mark Kelly and venture capitalist Blake Masters, as well as a gubernatorial race here between the Secretary of State Katie Hobbs and Republican Carrie Lake. All four of them are saying that they are optimistic that they expect at the end of the count that they will come out ahead. But Don, it's particularly comments from Carrie Lake that is really drawing the ire of election officials here in Maricopa County. She is a alleging that officials here are slow rolling or slow walking the election count for political reasons. Officials come out coming out yesterday and blasting her, including the Republican who actually runs elections here. Watch. Quite frankly, it is offensive for Carrie Lake to say that these people behind me are slow rolling this when they're working 14 to 18 hours. So I really hope this is the end of that. Now we can be patient and respect the results when they come out. So it's ironic to us that people who are calling, you know, into question the integrity of this election and want 
faster results don't understand that those it's actually those processes that add the integrity to our election process. And let me very quickly explain to you what is unique here. Officials say that of the 340,000 votes here in Maricopa County, 290,000 of those were voters who actually brought their mail-in ballot to the polls on Election Day. That a record number. If you vote here on Election Day, those are tabulated very quickly. But if you have to bring a mail-in ballot, there's a whole other process. They have to verify the signature. They have to verify the voter. This is why our friend John King continues to say, patience, patience, because the process is playing itself out. That, despite these conspiracy theories, theories that we're hearing. Finally, it's worth pointing out that those conspiracy theories are very real and have real consequences. That's why this building behind me, the election center, is surrounded right now by sheriff's deputies. They are here. Of course, as we've seen in this modern era, it's commonplace. Election workers doing their civic duty now have armed guards outside just in case. Yeah, both gotcha. Johns saying patience. John Berman and John King. Thank you, Josh both Campbell. Johns. Thank both you, Johns. John Berman. <laughs> appreciate it. Poppy? Okay, so this morning, a really significant development when it comes to canceling student loan debt. President Biden's plan to cancel billions of dollars in student debt is facing a significant new legal obstacle. This is after it was struck down yesterday by a Trump-appointed federal judge in Texas declaring it illegal. That was Judge Mark Pittman, who said, quote, in his opinion, in this country, we are not ruled by an all-powerful executive with a pen and a phone. Instead, we are ruled by a constitution that provides for three distinct and independent branches of government, basically saying the White House overreached here. The Justice Department is going to appeal the decision. The forgiveness program was already on hold because of a separate Eighth Circuit stay. The White House, though, says they're going to hold on to the information of all 26 million of you who have applied for that debt relief to see if the federal court decision is reversed. And this is a case that very well may end up before the Supreme Court. And as we wait to see what happens there, how's this for a first message from your new boss? A staff-wide email that was sent in the middle of the night, Elon Musk suggested the company could go into bankruptcy as executives are resigning, advertisers are fleeing, and trolls are running rampant on the platform since he took over. We have Rahel Solomon here to join us with more on breaking down really the turmoil at Twitter. And I feel like it's these last 12 hours that have mm. been especially chaotic. Which is really saying something, right? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to overstate the chaos, guys. So one recently laid off Twitter employee telling our colleague Oliver Darcy, quote, it feels like the beginning of the end, honestly, describing the company as the Titanic with everyone looking for lifeboats. So that includes top executives. Some of the resignations reported in just the past couple of days, the head of trust and safety, Twitter's chief information security officer, chief privacy officer. And to make matters worse, the exits of some of those last executives come after a senior member of Twitter's legal team also warned in an internal company message that his sole, Musk, his sole priority was recouping the losses that he's incurring as a result of failing to get out of this binding obligation to buy Twitter. So the loss of those senior execs also, guys, makes it much more difficult to lure already skeptical advertisers. Also not helping, an explosion of trolls and other, others creating imposter accounts after Musk effectively blew up verification on Twitter. You can see somebody pretending to be a fake Donald Trump account. And Twitter has also given a blue check mark to Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, Jesus Christ. Some things are getting a bit confusing on the site. Some would say a little alive. weird. He is risen. How do you, <laughs> so exactly how do you authenticate okay, that? That was, he is, I, that was, that was, that was hold on a second. That was the line of the moment. But I'm fine. Okay, if I'm being 
fair, I stole that from Donnie O'Sullivan's Twitter. <laughs> full transparency, but it was really good. I, I was know. It, say, was the comedic, it was the comedic timing, Rahel. It's, Don't sell yourself short. Thank you, Poppy. Yeah, right. Guys, it is really chaotic, as, as Caitlin yeah. pointed out. And in his first all-staff email, imagine this being the first email you get from your boss, Musk abruptly <laughs> announced a mandatory return to office. He also warned that the economic picture ahead is dire and said that without significant subscription revenue, there is a good chance that Twitter just will not survive the upcoming economic downturn. But through it all, he has continued to tweet. And it's hard to say, honestly, if he will even, you know, if things will stabilize, because just a day ago, he tweeted, please note that Twitter will do lots of dumb things. I mean, he said it, dumb things in coming months. We will keep what works and change what doesn't. So does that mean stability? I don't think so. Can I tell you, I signed up for his tweet alerts, so now I know when Elon Musk tweets, because I'm interested in what he's saying about (laughs) Yeah, because you miss a little, you miss a lot with Elon. Yeah. (laughs) We're supposed to ask you (laughs) about it. You seem laughing at that joke. I'm going to stay out of this. Wait, 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 before you go. (laughs) Inflation. Inflation. Yeah, I, you know, it's not a story for me. If I'm not talking about inflation, so you guys remember it was about yesterday, 8.30, when we were talking about that inflation report and the market's popped. Mm -hmm. Well, that continued throughout the day. It was one of the best days for the markets in years. The Dow closed up about 1,200 points. I mean, look at some of these stats. The Dow finished up almost 4%. The S&P 5.5%. The Nasdaq 7.3%. To put that in context, that would be a great month. We saw that in a day. And that's because of that inflation report that we talked about as it crossed, coming in lighter than expected. The lightest number in about a year, 7.7% on an annual basis. And investors are hoping maybe this means the Fed will ease up on sort of the magnitude of some of those rate hikes, maybe half okay, a percent. Okay, true. To, are you a do you are you a checker? Do you check four hundred one k? Never. I never. Oh, every day. You do no, every, every day. day. You, you don't. Never. No, that's do you cool. check every day. No, I don't check. But I, you know Tim. You guys know Tim. I feel every day. I can depend on his mood. The market. Uh, uh, uh. And then yesterday he comes and goes. Did you check your four hundred one k today? I said this no. Is Tim. Tim is so great. I know, but I I'm figured, saying no. I he goes. Figured out my four hundred one k like a month ago. You probably ago. made some good money. He should I'm like, not okay. be putting himself through that stress every day. That's <laughs> all. Don't touch it. The rule is rebalance like never, once a year. Never. Look. Tim is also not even close to retirement. Neither that, are you. Maybe that's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry for what I you should thought. be checking it. Wow, that was some. That wasn't even subtle shade. It was oh, a nice yeah. Yes. Wow. Obviously, See as always, thank you. With. Keep us updated on what's happening with Twitter. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> we got to go down to Florida. Uh, first, we got to to get there. We're going to go through Atlanta because this morning Nicole has weakened into a tropical depression after slamming into Florida's east coast as a Category One hurricane. So look at some of the destruction left behind: beachfront homes ripped apart and destroyed, down power lines and. Uh, out of just crippling parts of the state. At least four deaths are blamed on Nicole. So what I said, to get to Florida, we're going to go to Atlanta, and, th- and that's our meteorologist, Mr. Chad Myers, from the Weather Center down at headquarters. Chad, good morning to you. What is going on with this thing? You know, this was the result of Hurricane Ian, to be really honest. I know it's Nicole damage, but Ian damaged the dunes, damaged the sand, damaged the beaches, and so the waves and the surge from Nicole were able to hit those buildings. Structural damage up and down the East Coast is tremendous. Hard to look at some of this damage. It is so bad. Some of the aerials we're seeing now really coming in were house after house after house, just down to the beach. The rain now is still raining up in Ohio, all the way down to Virginia, and then as far south as Florida. But the center of the cell right now is still a tropical depression, is around Macon, Georgia. So it's about to move away. We're still going to see the potential for some tornadoes today. Small ones, but they're still there. And also, of course, the wind that could still come in. 
30 or 40 miles per hour. Had some flooding in Charleston yesterday with a little bit of surge there because the wind was pushing the water into the harbor and we're still going to see winds of 30 to 40. So things have certainly calmed down by later on tonight. Maybe a slow commute, Boston, New York, Philadelphia. That's where the rain is going. And then by tomorrow, cold front pushes on by and Don, all the weather that you liked so much in the 60s and the 70s does go away with this rainfall. Temperatures are going to fall 20 degrees. Uh, I'm not going to say it because I know when we blame you for the weather, you don't like it. So I just won't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you, Chad Myers. Appreciate it. Justin to CNN, another setback for Vladimir Putin, who has been noticeably silent on this exit. Russian troops withdrawing from the Kherson region. That was the first major city to fall when Russia invaded Ukraine in late February. According to the Russian Defense Ministry, the exit is complete. They say, quote, not a single piece of military equipment or weaponry was left behind. That's according to the Russian Defense Ministry again. An image has been circulating on social media showing a Ukrainian flag in the center of the city. That's the city that Putin illegally annexed in September. So far, there's no indication that Ukrainian forces have returned to the city, but obviously watching it closely as are White House officials. Wait until you hear this reporting. Russian naval vessels are gathering for a possible test of a new nuclear-powered Torpedo. That's right. That's according to a senior U.S. official who tells CNN the U.S. has reportedly observed vessels, including the biggest submarine in the world, moving in the Arctic Sea. CNN anchor and chief national correspondent Jim Pschuto is with us on Mars. This is your reporting, Jim. I mean, that sounds ominous. It is. This is a truly frightening weapon, a nuclear-powered torpedo, really an underwater drone. I mean, I mean, it's huge, as you can see here, and it has tremendous capability. It has a nuclear propulsion system, which gives it basically limitless range. And what this is designed to do, Poppy, it's designed to sit off the coast of an adversary country, perhaps the U.S., a, a major city, and if ordered, launch either a conventional or a nuclear strike on that city without warning. It, it was such a focus of the Russian president that he actually announced this in his 2018 State of the Union address. He had big mock-ups of it, computer-generated gem imagery of just how this would work in effect as a warning to the world. And that is why the U.S. was watching these exercises in the Arctic so closely to see if Russia had made an advance so significantly that they were ready to test this thing. There's the Belgorod submarine, uh, and this is from that 2018 speech when Putin introduced it. it it's, it's a real worry, particularly, Poppy, with U.S. and Western concern that Russia, given its setbacks in Ukraine, wants to show the world just what a military capability it has. Can you, Jim, this is fascinating reporting. Can you talk about a little bit more of your reporting that is that these vessels were observed leaving Russia's testing yes. area in the Arctic, heading back to port, but interestingly, without carrying out a test? What does that Absolutely. indicate? What does that tell you? Well, listen, you, you talk about setbacks for Putin in Ukraine. The U.S. view here is that these exercises, and they took place up here in the Arctic Sea, just north of Russia, where Russia has a number of naval bases, uh, the U.S. view is that they may have run into technical problems. Mm. They know that they carried this torpedo on the Belgorod submarine out to those exercises. Here's a submarine. It's designed specifically to carry it. And they were preparing for the first kind of real-world test of this torpedo. But then they left last week. They returned to port without testing it. Uh, potential technical difficulties that maybe they're not there yet with this. And also, it's the Arctic up there. It's going to ice over. They had a limited window for it. But regardless, uh, point being, they have this weapon in their arsenal. 
the U.S. watching closely to see if they're going to use it as a sort of message to the world, given wow. their setbacks in Ukraine. Wow, that's fascinating. Jim, thank you for the reporting. Thanks, partner. All right, miss you. All right. Oh, that was sweet, Jim. That was so cute. Wait, let's bring Jim back for a second. Jim. We brought you up early in the morning. That you was stole her. You huh? stole her from me, we Tom miss- and Caitlin. I'm watching you. Uh. We miss you. When are you coming? Don't come. worry. She still misses you, Jim. I'll, I'll come find you. Okay. Right. Bye. You, Good Jim. reporting, Jim. Yeah, Thank nice. you. All right. This morning, Dave Chappelle's spokesman is denying reports that Saturday Night Live writers were boycotting the show because he is hosting it this weekend. And what is America really thinking about the midterms? Our next guest is using his online presence to clear the noise and elevate the opinions of real voters instead of pundits or poll watchers. Love that. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. Is the Trump era over? That's a big question. So many of you across the country are talking about it. It is not a question just being asked by Democrats either. Take a look. This is the New York Post headline this morning. Republicans, it's time to retire 45 and put in a new starter to win the championship. And the conservative news outlet, the Washington Examiner, with this. Quote, these midterm elections have made it crystal clear that voters want to move past the chaos and dishonor of the 45th president. Even the former secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, a longtime Trump loyalist, taking to Twitter writing, quote, conservatives are elected when we deliver, not when we just rail on social media. Now, votes are still being counted and the Republican Party still could end up in control of both chambers of Congress. We'll see. But despite favorable conditions, it is clear that Republicans fell well short of lofty expectations for a so-called red wave. The lack of success enjoyed by several MAGA candidates is now raising real questions about Trump's power with Republican voters. At least five Trump-backed candidates lost key races in critical swing states, prompting people like Georgia's Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan to suggest a fresh face of the GOP is needed heading into 2024. There's no way to deny Donald Trump got fired Tuesday night, and the search committee has brought a few names to the top of the list, and Ron DeSantis (laughs) is one of them. And it's not just ardent anti-Trumpers. Listen to what Republican Congressman-elect Mike Lawler of New York told us just yesterday morning. I think more focus needs to be on the issues Mm -hmm. and the substance of those issues than on personalities. You want to see the party move forward from Trump? Yeah, I think I think moving in a a different direction as we move forward uh, is a good thing, uh, not a bad thing. Now, some of Trump's biggest supporters and detractors are striking similar tones with regard to where the Republican Party should go from here. Watch. There's a very high correlation between MAGA candidates and big losses. You know, the voters have spoken and they have said that they want a different leader. And a true leader understands when they have become a liability a true leader understands that it's time to step off the stage. I think he needs to put it on pause. Absolutely. Look, he'll make that decision. He'll make his own decision. It is worth noting that GOP support for former President Donald Trump did buckle in the wake of the 2020 election in the Capitol insurrection, only for Republicans like Senator Lindsey Graham and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy to work hard to get back in the former president's good graces in the months that followed. There's still a lot of time before voters head back to the polls ahead of 2024's presidential election. But the results of these midterms have thrown the future of the party into unexpected chaos. 
And now that we've heard from that chaos from Poppy, we go to a CNN fact check because there is a claim that Trump is making about saving Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's campaign in 2018. He talks about sending in federal agency, federal agents after that election was conducted. We have CNN's Paula Reed, who is live in Washington. Paula, I know there's a lot going on in between Trump going after DeSantis when it comes to many points. But what about this claim about what happened in 2018 and the role he played as president specifically? Well, good morning, Caitlin. So as we know, former President Trump, he continues to attack DeSantis in the wake of the GOP's poor midterm performance and suggestions that the Florida governor should be the one to lead the party heading into 2024. Now, in a lengthy social media post last night, Trump claimed that he leveraged federal law enforcement to stop DeSantis from losing his 2018 race for governor. Trump wrote, when votes were being stolen by the corrupt election process in Broward County and Ron was going down 10,000 votes a day, along with now Senator Rick Scott, I sent in the FBI and the U.S. attorneys and the ballot theft immediately ended just prior to them running out of the votes necessary to win. I stopped this election from being stolen. Now, this is, of course, just the latest iteration of a claim that Trump has made many times before about elections being stolen, even in the absence of any evidence. But I do want to provide some context for what was happening in that 2018 race. In November 2018, Governor Rick Scott, the Republican nominee for Senate, accused two of the state's largest counties of fraud. Trump joined in, tweeting at the time, don't worry, Florida, I am sending much better lawyers to expose the fraud. Now, Scott and then Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi, a very close ally of the former president, called on the Florida Department of Law Enforcement to investigate. They did. And that 18-month investigation found no evidence of widespread fraud. Now, as for Trump's claim that he sent in federal law enforcement agents, well, we have reached out to the current Justice Department and FBI, as well as multiple officials who were at the Trump Justice Department in 2018. But so far, there's nothing we have seen to indicate that former President Trump did attempt to leverage federal law enforcement to help Republicans in 2018. Caitlin. Paula, thanks for that fact check. All right, as predictions of a red wave turned out to be overblown on Tuesday night, our next guest says that the pulse of the people was actually pretty loud and clear if you were looking in the right places. Moshe Anunu is a digital journal journalist who directly engages with his audience on Instagram and other platforms, getting a firsthand look at the opinions of real voters. He's been talking to his news community, and he joins us now. I'm fascinated with this basically experiment, this news experiment that you've conducted on Instagram, you're kind of like this news concierge you've been called. And I read that you said you really wanted to take this, this straightforward approach with your followers. And basically people, people want to see what's happening in the news, maybe see stuff that questions their own assumptions about things. And you really found that there was an audience for that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I spent nearly 20 years of my career like in a control room at places like Fox and, and CBS. And I sort of fell into this during COVID where I found myself not in a newsroom uh, and, and out there for the first time. Uh, and so I was trying to find a way to take in all the information. And I found that being a news consumer really sucks. Um, and that ultimately there's so much going on out there and they're just trying to get the basic facts. And they don't want to be told what, they don't want to be told what they should know, but basically how to think. Not what to think, but how to think. And what they're really looking for is, is less of the, the polls and the punditry and really just give me the issues, give me the facts. And, and when it comes to Tuesday night, there had been, you know, so many 
from all across the media, from Democrats to Republicans inside the White House, thinking there was going to be this big red wave that just did not materialize. But you heard directly from people, you didn't think that that was actually what they were thinking was going to happen. Well, what I found so interesting is that we tend to focus on the top issue in the exit polls, right? So it was like, all right, economy, economy, abortion, et cetera. And for many people, it wasn't a game of checkers, but a game of chess. It's a very complex equation they were doing that I care about. Well, I care about abortion and I care about crime or I care about the economy and I care about um, multiple issues. And so ultimately, it wasn't as simple as like, well, the economy is the top issue. Well, then clearly Republicans are going to be taking it everywhere. And ultimately, also, we try to brush things with broad strokes nationally when there was a lot of nuance happening locally. That the way someone was voting in Arizona was very different from Ohio, was very different from New York City. Yeah, you were... Uh even though you're very young, you've accomplished a lot. You were executive producer of the CBS Evening News for two years, just to like remind people of how high you rose in sort of traditional media. So I wonder, taking this step and using a totally different platform and hearing from people in a totally different way, how enlightening, eye-opening was this all? Is this all to you? A couple, in so many ways. Number one, I did not fundamentally understand the lack of trust Americans uh, have, have lost in the media. In fact, there was, a, there was a Reuters survey over the summer. It was 46 countries, population 3 billion between all these countries, and we were dead last in terms of trust the in United news and media. The United States was. The United States, dead last. That's incredible. Three out of four Americans don't trust the news and information they get. And we can sit here as journalists and say, well, part of that might have to do with politicians, you know, uh, calling us fake news, et cetera. But there is a fundamental issue right now in terms of, of distrust that people have out there. Mm -hmm. And that was the most eye-opening thing. And the second thing, as somebody you know, who sat there at CBS you know, running a show every day and deciding what the issues were, what the wake-up call was, there's no real dialogue happening with our viewers. We have all these means, all these social media. How can, how can we do it better then? Well, what I'm trying to do on, on Instagram is genuinely engage every day. What are you guys interested in? What are you asking questions about? And, you know, and sometimes it's, it doesn't occur to us who kind of live within this politics world. Hey, explain why the Senate matters again. What do they do? What's a Georgia runoff? <laughs> What's a runoff? Why do they have runoffs? Um, wait, the Supreme Court, there's no way to really check them. They're there for life. How is that? Why is, what's a filibuster? Aaron Burr came up with it when he was bored in the Senate after he shot Alexander Hamilton 200 years ago. People, you know, like we just said, well, it's the filibuster. Well, why is it? There's a lot of whys and hows uh, that people genuinely want to have a conversation about without being judged. But that's a, listen, there's a, the whole idea of media literacy. And I think, look, we could all do better when it comes to that. But is it the, it's somewhat the media's job to sort of explain to people, but it's really education. I learned you know, about Aaron Burr, I learned about a runoff, whatever. That's things that I was taught in school. And so, you know, I, while I think it's, again, while we have to make people more literate when it comes to the media, you can't just gloss over what you said about politicians saying fake news, because that undermined a trust in a very important institution and continues to do so. And also what it did was it helped to put, it forced people into political corners, and to watch media that became echo chambers. And, to it, and then you got, have the algorithms on social media that force, also forces people into echo chambers. And those places are not necessarily governed by facts and, and reality. And so it's incumbent upon a lot of people, not just the media, to make people literate about what is actual good news and bad news? Oh, sure. I think there's fair share to go around. Right. I think it's the social media algorithms that 
literally we learned from the Facebook leaks last year, right, that uh, they, they found out that we stay on the platform based on how much outrage we see. Yeah. Like outrage drives more consumption. So the tech companies, blame. The politicians, blame. But there's a fundamental loss in trust institutions, whether it's the CDC or the FBI or, uh, uh, or the media. That across the board, and also people demand more. They demand more from their bosses right now. They demand more from their government, and they're demanding more from us. But can I show people quickly what you're doing? Because if people aren't familiar with your Instagram, and I was touting this last night, my friend Melanie, she, I think she's watching right now, she's obsessed with your Instagram Hi, and Melanie. loves it. <laughs> but we you know some of the things you ask, and I loved this because my dad called me yesterday after the show, and he goes, I know I've mentioned him three times today. Well, he's coming on Monday. He, but he called me yesterday, and he goes, did Trump and Ron DeSantis not like each other? And the question fascinated me because we live in this world where we're like, of course they don't. Here's the issue. But like, not everyone knows that. And so you you actually asked your audience, you know, send me your thoughts on Trump and DeSantis. And you got a mix of responses saying... It was fascinating. It, it, we take for granted, we live and breathe this stuff, right? We live and breathe um, every one of these politicians and what they're doing on a day-to-day basis. Most people, they have lives. <laughs> they have kids. They have jobs. They're busy with things. So... It bears repeating, uh, you know, some of these things that happen historically. They're not, they're coming in in the middle of the movie. And they're like, wait a second, what happened in the first half? And you're catching them up to speed. I'm trying to catch them up to speed. And I did that with Afghanistan last year. Like, how far do you want to go back? Or the, by the way, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict's another one where it's like, well, when do you want to start? Like, what century or millennia do you want to start, right? But that's also an echo chamber, too. I mean, does your, your dad, I'm sure, is a very informed person. Perhaps he is not watching CNN a lot. Oh, he is. No, he watches CNN, but he it's exactly what you said. He's really busy. He gets up early in the morning. Yeah. He's at work all day long. Then he's coming home. He's hanging out with, you know, his grandkids and whatnot. And so he, he has all these other things going on. So he's not really paying mm. finite and close attention to so many things. And, and by the way, on the Trump DeSantis thing, it's fascinating because I, I threw that question out there. And so Instagram trends younger. Right. But there's an interesting generational divide happening among Republicans right now. And I I heard from a number of people uh, who voted for Trump twice, 16 and 20. Uh And they're like, now I'm done. Uh, And I go, why? And they said for some of them, it was his his the the sanctimonious line at the rally this week that, you know, basically it's like, well, his ego has gotten the best of him. And I go, well, have you been watching for the past six years? (laughs) And they're like, honestly, part of the way the media covered him where everything he did was bad put me in a defensive crouch. Mm. Yeah. And so I felt the need to defend him. Now, interestingly, I was like, what about your parents who are voting for Trump? They're like, well, they're still with him because mm. they feel loyal to him. So it's, it is a very interesting nuance happening within the, you know, you just, guys just discussed it within the Republican Party about what to do with him. But I think we need to be looking at gender splits yeah. and generational splits good, when it comes to Good for that. you because it's Thank the lesson you. of it's not just important how we see ourselves. It's important hold a mirror up how, yeah. the, how the world sees the institution, the fourth estate. Thank so. you. Thank really you. Appreciate it. Thank, Thank you guys. so much for joining us. Everyone follow his Instagram. I will tweet your handle so everyone can see it. Up um, next. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Up next, Dave Chappelle's return to Saturday Night Live is already off to a rocky start. Why the comedian was forced to deny a report that the writers for the show were boycotting his appearance. That's next. You are also looking here. Those are live pictures this morning of Arlington National Cemetery. Hours from now, Vice President Harris will join the First Lady, Dr. Jill Biden, on this Veterans Day in honor of all of those who have served in the U.S. forces.
Okay, so comedian Dave Chappelle is set to host Saturday Night Live this weekend, but the appearance is not going over well with some due to Chappelle's past comments about the transgender community. Jason Carroll is here, joins us with more on this controversy. What is going on? Hello to you. What's going on here? Good morning to you, Don. You know, a number of people still upset about Chappelle's past comments. Now comes word that some at SNL are wondering if he's the right person who should have been chosen to host the show. Anticipation building at 30 Rock, home of NBC and Saturday Night Live, where comedian Dave Chappelle is set to host SNL's post-election day episode this weekend. This is Dave. He tells jokes for a living. He's also about to host Saturday Night Live for the third time. But this time, questions about possible problems behind the scenes. Chappelle's representatives pushing back on unconfirmed reports that SNL writers were staging a boycott related to the comedian's previous comments about the trans community. Telling CNN, we've seen nothing to support media reports of a writer's boycott. In fact, the writers delivered over 40 sketches for Dave's consideration and collaboration. Chappelle has come under fire for comments about the transgender community in his stand-up routines, most recently in his Netflix special, The Closer. Gender is a fact. This is a fact. Every human being in this room, every human being on Earth, had to pass through the legs of a woman to be on Earth. That is a fact. A Reddit user captured this Instagram story from SNL writer Celeste Yim, who wrote, I'm trans and non-binary. I use they, them pronouns. Transphobia is murder, and it should be condemned. It is not clear if this was aimed at Chappelle. Yim did not respond to CNN requests to comment about him hosting. News of Chappelle's return was met with some backlash on social media. As some pointed out, the show announced in September it was adding its first non-binary cast member, Molly Kearney. Chappelle began his post-election hosting for SNL in 2016, following the election of Donald Trump. All my black friends who have money said the same thing when Trump got elected. That's it, bro. I'm out. I'm leaving the country. You coming with us? Nah, I'm good, dog. I'm gonna stay here and get this tax break, see how it works out. And he continued in 2020, after Biden won. And I thought we were having a comedy show. It's like a woke meeting in here. Now Chappelle is set for another go in front of SNL's live studio audience as both his critics and fans wait to hear what he will say next. And CNN did reach out to NBC about Chappelle, but an NBC spokesperson said they were not commenting. Uh, it is safe to say that a number of folks are probably going to tune in to see how Chappelle is going to handle himself, especially during that opening monologue. Guys, back to you. All right. Jason, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Let's bring in now senior political commentator, Mr. Van Jones. I want to bring you into the conversation and what a conversation it is. I just want to play this because I, I think it relates as a conversation that you had with Dave Chappelle on your show, and then we'll talk. I think that the rhetoric of his presidency is repugnant. I just don't like the way he talks. I don't like, uh, you know, there's certain, we're living in a time where there's got to be a little more cultural sensitivity. And even a guy like me that's just writing jokes, I have to listen more than I've ever had to listen because the gripes are coming so fast and furious. And, and, and I'm not dismissive of people's gripes. It might sound like it on stage, but, but I, I listen. 
Mm -hmm. So he was talking about the former president, but he talked about cultural sensitivity, and he said it may not sound like I listen because you hear what's happening, yeah. supposedly over at SNL. Yeah. What do you What do you make? Look, I, I think that um, you know I know Dave Chappelle, so I have to put that put that out there. I, I do know him. I was glad glad to have have him on the show, um, and I think that he is speaking for a lot of people raising these these issues and these concerns. How are we going to deal with the uh, transition to a different understanding of gender? on a global level. And, um, you know, I, I think he falls in certain traps sometimes of saying it's either black or it's trans and kind of has these kind of, uh, kind of false debates between like black people and trans people. There are black people who are trans. Um, but I do know him and I know that he cares an awful lot. And if you actually looked at the special that he did, the end of the special, he's talking about his personal relationship with a trans woman who killed herself. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that sometimes it gets so polarized and whatever you actually watch the special, that thing was less funny than usual, but he talked about his own molest. It's cultural commentary. It's cultural commentary more than and comedy. Yes, Flame Monroe, right. who, is, who is a black trans yes. um, woman, um, invites her on stage. Exactly. Right? And, so, and so I think that people are going to tune in. People are going to want to know, how are you going to handle it? Have you learned anything? Are you more nuanced? Are you more outrageous? How are you going to use this platform? But I think that this conversation we're trying to have about a different understanding of, of gender, I think he's, it's been... Uh, it's been good to have someone like him to raise the issues. Now, what are we going to do with it? Do you think he, what is, since you do know him, and maybe I don't, you don't have to speak to personal conversations, but I guess what is his sense of this, given what Don just noted there, how he is trying to use it? Does he have a sense of what he's learned from it, I guess? Well, look, I mean, I, I haven't talked to him recently, but I, what I do know is that uh, he has been able to use his platform to have very tough conversations. He's you know, obviously one of the best, if not, you know, the best in the world right now, what he's doing. Uh, I think the bigger question that's going on is if you're my age, you know, I'm, uh, you guys can go on Wikipedia, but, you know, <laughs> I'm a little older than I look. Um, you know, I remember in the in the 90s uh, when transgender people were being beaten, being harassed, the lesbian, gay, bisexual movement wasn't even claiming trans at that point. They were kind of on an island by themselves. I was working in San Francisco uh, with a group called Trans Action. We were trying to get the police department to lay off that population. We were trying to get transgender people not to be put in unsafe housing in the 90s. This issue has been around for a very long time. I think that you know, for those of us who are you know, passionate about justice and equality, uh, this is, issue is meaningful to us. At the same time, I'm also a parent. I still don't know myself exactly how to handle the issue as a parent. Mm -hmm. And so we're all trying to figure this stuff out. Dave is a lightning rod, you know, for a certain part, kind of conversation. What I do think you were talking about in the last segment, nuance, hmm. nuance. Can somebody challenge the orthodoxy on either side and then not be considered to be a hater? David. I don't think Dave Chappelle hates anybody. He may, I don't agree with his analysis on some of this stuff, but I know that he doesn't hate people. And when you say, if you disagree with me, you hate people. If you disagree with me, you're now responsible for teen suicides. Now we can't have the conversation that we desperately need to have. It's kind of what you said as we were getting ready to launch this show. It's about curiosity and not, and not judgment. That part. That, yes, yes. But also, with, as you know, when you have a platform as big as, I mean, ours. Of course, and every word matters. Huge platform. Responsible. Yep. Yes, from people. Yeah, you got to be responsible. You got to be responsible. That's tough. I get, can we talk politics while we have you here? Um, so this caught my eye. Um, you know, Herschel Walker. Down in Georgia. Who's and that? You have Lindsey, <laughs> and you have, you know, Lindsey Graham was on talking about support for him. And I just, this caught our ears and eyes here on CNN This Morning. Watch this. 
They're trying to destroy Herschel to deter young men and women of color from being Republicans. If they destroy Herschel, it will deter people of color from wanting to be a conservative Republican because you just have your life ruined. We cannot let that happen. We need, his, we need to have his back. If Herschel wins, he's going to inspire people all over Georgia of color to become Republicans, and I say all over the United States. Herschel Walker is a nightmare for liberals. He's an African-American conservative. They have belittled him. They have treated him like crap. His family stand by Herschel tonight. If you can give, give. If you know somebody that can give, ask them to do it. TeamHerschel.com. The conservative movement for people of color is on the ballot in Georgia. We must help people like Herschel for the benefit of our country and the future of conservatism. TeamHerschel.com, please. Do you, do you want to go first or you want me? Van, <laughs> you go. Uh, well, first of all, he's a nightmare to the children that he has abandoned and done nothing for. He's a nightmare to his own son who came out and said he lies all the time and shouldn't be in office. He's a nightmare. But look, if you want to, if you, if you are a young black person, you want to be a conservative, there's a guy named Tim Scott I would direct you to if you want somebody in the Senate who you can look up to. The idea that, again, everything has to be at the extreme. If you don't want someone with his uh, lack of qualifications and bad personal character to be in the Senate, you now hate all conservatives and don't want any black people to be conservative. That's not true. All of us got conservative black people in our families. Yeah. What are you talking about? Let me tell you. What are you talking about? This is what he's talking about. People like him always talk about race baiting. <laughs> Identity oh. politics. Here we this, go. this is race baiting. This is race baiting in the worst form to say because someone doesn't like, if you're black and you don't like this, this is the worst thing. So if you don't, if you believe like, you know, liberals are the people who are not MAGA and they're always race baiting or they believe in identity politics, that's exactly, that's exactly what, what, he's, doing. what he's doing. The hypocrisy yeah. off the charts there. And then, he, you know, the, Oh my gosh, I thought he was going to start crying like a southern preacher. <laughs> He's like a televangelist. To to, yeah, tell people just because you're, you're black and you don't, you, know, you don't support Herschel Walker, that is the worst, I believe, form of race. I, I think so. And here's the reality. Um, if the Republican Party continues to make its basic case around fiscal conservatism, that sort of stuff, they'll pick up some black votes. Uh, look, I have two African-American female cousins uh, uh, one of them is named Karsha Kirkendall. She said, she said, to tell the world who are MAGA, Trump, conservative and proud of it. And I love them and they love me. The idea that we need someone like Lindsey Graham to explain to us how to relate to different political positions in our own community is just ridiculous. I mean, it's almost embarrassing. And if you're going to be that evangelical in your belief about somebody, be evangelical about the values that this man has violated when it comes to abandoning his own children. How long before, you know, after this, you'll hear someone like Lindsey, Lindsey Graham or someone else like, do you do, you know, abandoning their children in the black community? You know, well, you know yeah, he'll be doing that tomorrow. And by the way, I don't know if my cousin Karsha is MAGA. I know that she's a Republican. So, <laughs> that will get you in the worst Exactly. exactly. Slight difference there. Uh, exactly. It's a slight difference there. So I, I, t I take it back. I know that she's, yeah. she's a strong, proud conservative, and I love my cousin. Love it when you have you here. Thank you, Van Thank Jones. You, Van. Appreciate Thank it so much. Thank you, Van. Thank you, Don. Mm -hmm. That was a good conversation. Thank you very much. Okay. Flights are so expensive. Can we just, <laughs> yeah. they are so expensive. Airline prices keep going up, but that is not stopping Americans from booking flights. This is so interesting. 
Okay, really high demand, really expensive tickets. Why, even with the economy in turmoil? More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, as all of you grapple with surging inflation, all of us, the skyrocketing cost of airfare is not stopping people from traveling. That's actually exactly what the CEO of Delta told us this week. Listen. The demand is already back, the raw demand, you know, the interest in travel. And you can see that everyone felt once the pandemic subsided, they needed to go someplace. And by the way, whatever price it took, they were they were just they needed to get out. So the demand is driving the principal factor in pricing. Our colleague Pete Montine is live at Reagan National Airport for CNN this morning. I'm totally fascinated by this because with everything more expensive, people are pulling back a lot. There's all this recession talk, but they're buying expensive flights. No doubt, Poppy. You know, people are done buying things, the travel experts say, and are now just simply ready to travel. It's been pretty busy here at Reagan National Airport today. What is so interesting, the travel experts tell us, is that really tickets are not much more expensive than they are now compared back to 2019. And people are simply waiting until the last minute, hoping that tickets go down. We have all done it. And in essence, overpaying. Look at the numbers from Adobe Analytics. People paid $7.7 billion in total on airfare over the month of October. That's 15% higher than October 2019, back before the pandemic. But the average airfare numbers are roughly the same as what we saw back then. It's about uh, $275 for a domestic round trip over Thanksgiving, according to Hopper, $382 for a domestic round trip over Christmas. What is really interesting here, I just want you to listen to the tip from travel experts. Do not wait until the last minute. You may have missed your chance for Thanksgiving. You still have an opportunity with Christmas. You should book right now. It's no surprise, I think, that you're seeing folks generally overpaying this year compared to where they were pre-pandemic, especially considering how much money folks had saved not traveling over the past few years and how much pent-up demand there was folks really excited to take the first trips that they had been able to or felt comfortable to in years. How long will we see this popping? Well, that is the big question. And travel experts say we have now reached the new normal. This is what you will pay for airfare for a while now because the airlines see that demand is up and people are willing to swallow these prices. There are still deals to find. If you are traveling for Thanksgiving, you might have a little luck booking to go out of town the Monday before Thanksgiving come back the Monday after, kind of a long time to spend with the in-laws. Can't believe it, though, Poppy. We're less than two weeks out to Thanksgiving. Things are about to be a lot more busy here. That's for sure. Pete Montine, thank you for the reporting. This is a live look right now at Arlington National Cemetery on this Veterans Day. Thank you to all those who serve and all those who have sacrificed. Because of you, we get to vote in free and fair elections. And now... We get to figure out who won in these free and fair elections that just happened. Control of Congress still undecided this morning with more than a half a million votes left to be counted. Let's take a look at Arizona, the Senate race there. Democrat Mark Kelly has widened his lead this morning over Republican candidate Blake Masters. As many as 350,000 ballots, though, still need to be tabulated in Maricopa County alone. And to Nevada, where Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto is closing the gap on her Republican challenger, Adam Laxalt, a Trump-backed election denier. If either party wins both Nevada and Arizona, they control the Senate.
But if the parties split Arizona and Nevada, the Georgia Senate race is going to decide the balance of power in a runoff next month. Most of you may be moving on from Election Day, not so in Georgia, where it seems a bit like Groundhog Day. The state is entering its third runoff contest in less than two years. Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock are already back on the campaign trail with these messages. And he's thinking he's going to win. We need to prove him wrong and let him get out of that office. I'm going to need you to stick with me for four more weeks. Can we do that? Four more weeks. You heard it. But first, John Berman is here with the numbers at the Magic Wall. Let's do Senate. Obviously, let's start with Arizona. Arizona. Okay, here we go. So Mark Kelly now leads by 115,000 votes. There were some new votes tabulated and reported last night from Maricopa County. 78,000 new votes there. 78,000 new votes there of which Mark Kelly, the Democrat, won 55 percent. Now, What's interesting about this and what I want to talk about as we think about what's going forward, we think there are about 340,000 votes left to count for Maricopa County alone. 290,000 of them Mm -hmm. are votes that were handed in on Election Day, mail ballots that were handed in on Election Day. Those tend to behave more like Election Day votes in Arizona. At least they did two years ago. They tend to skew more Republican. At least they did two years ago. That's what we saw two years ago. The question is, how much more Republican this time for that huge batch of 290,000 votes? And will it be enough for Blake Masters to overtake Mark Kelly? He would have to win by enormous margins on that 290,000 vote total there. But that's the situation in Arizona. We think there's 540,000 votes left overall. One thing to think about as a target, he would need to win 60 percent or more of the remaining vote in order to take Mark Kelly. Democrats feeling good. It's not over, but they're feeling good there. Nevada right now, the Republican Adam Laxalt is still ahead by 9000 votes, but his lead shrunk overnight. Also, there were new votes reported from Clark County, home of Las Vegas. It makes up nearly 75 percent of the state. There were 12,000 votes reported in Clark County, of which the incumbent Democrat, Catherine Cortez Masto, she won 61 percent of that. A little bit of a similar situation. I should put the thousand there, not just 12. It was (laughs) 12,000. Similar situation up in Washoe County, where there were roughly 18,000 votes Mm -hmm. counted Last night, and of those, Catherine Cortez Masto, she won 60%. Now, the reason I put those percentages up there is of the remaining vote, and CNN thinks there is roughly 95,000, there are roughly 95,000 votes left, Mm -hmm. 95K votes left here. If Catherine Cortez Masto won 60% of that, she's got it. That would give her the lead. Will she win 60% of it? I don't know. When will we know? We will know soon. Um, there are 22,000 votes that Washoe County, CNN just reported a long time ago, yep. 22, short time ago, 22,000 votes from Washoe County, which should be counted and reported by tonight. That could give her an additional four to 5,000 uh, votes, Catherine Cortez Masto, if it behaves like it has been. Then it's getting even closer. Then we've got about 50,000 votes left from Clark County to count. So you can see how this could close. Is there enough room for her to make up the difference? We'll have to wait and see. Maybe this is fat. Do you have to work all weekend? 
Uh, no, I, I can't. I actually had to take tomorrow off. All right, for, good. For you deserve it. So thank you. Thank you for reporting that on the National Film. <laughs> John Berman, thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you, Poppy. Appreciate that. Did America dodge an arrow on Election Day? New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman, well, he writes, Tuesday's election really was the most important test since the Civil War of whether the engine of our constitutional system, our ability to peaceably and legitimately transfer power, remains intact. And it looks to have come through a little dinged up, but okay. Well, the perfect person to talk about this is um, the author of Now. Thank you for being late, Mr. Tom Friedman. Tom, thank you. Appreciate you joining us. Good morning to you. Happy to be with you guys, Don. Congratulations on your show. I thank you. I really appreciate it. So, listen, uh, I used to talking to you at night, and now I'm talking to you at day side. Let's see if we can do, have the same conversation, sort of conversation here, because you also write, given the unprecedented degree to which elections denialism has, was elevated in the midterms, uh, and the way several big-name Trump-imitating knuckleheads who made denialism central to their campaigns got their clocks clean, we may have just dodged one of the biggest arrows ever aimed at the heart of our democracy. How do you think we do dodge this arrow? Well, Don, you know, uh, the point, of course, is that what makes our democracy unique, any democracy, has been our ability to, for over two, almost 250 years, uh, peacefully and legitimately transfer power. That, that's the core of our democracy. Um, we did that in this election. Um, I think now it's pretty clear. Uh, after two years of uh, a, a uh, defeated president and many in his party, claiming the last election uh, was a fraud. Uh, and the fact that uh, in so many states uh, where even candidates who implied that Trump nonsense were on the ballot, that they were rejected, that um, uh, and Republicans who didn't find that conspiracy theory were rewarded. Uh, that was the American people saying to Trump, um, uh, take your election denialism and shove it. We are going to vote, um, uh, and we trust our neighbors uh, and our, uh, our voting officials to count the ballots fairly. That, that's a huge win for democracy. But there are still a lot of election deniers, and especially state elections, right? And they're going to be in charge of deciding who wins and who's not. They, including four election deniers, elected to be in charge of state elections, secretary of state, etc. So did we really dodge an arrow? Yeah, well, you know, no doubt that those people are out there. But, you know, ask yourself this, Don, you know, have, you, know, have you heard Trump saying that um, uh, Oz lost uh, his guy in, in Pennsylvania? He, he lost illegitimately. You haven't actually heard Trump saying this election was was illegitimate. You know why? Because he actually doesn't care about anybody else except himself. Yeah, because he's um, not on the ballot. The only yeah, and he's not on the ballot, so he doesn't actually care. He's not out there uh, propagating this nonsense. And it makes you, you have to step back. You know, Don, I get a little emotional when I vote. I, I went over to my local, you know, elementary school. You go in there. There's really, there's some young people, mostly retirees, um, uh, you know, monitoring the ballots, conducting the elections. And you sort of look around and say, these were the people? These were the great conspiracists you talked about? Shame on you. Shame on you that in the middle of a pandemic, you perpetrated this lie of election denialism on our whole country. You took us through this whole thing. Now we have this election. You don't say boo, of course, because you're not on the ballot. Shame on you, you terrible man, what you put our country through. I loved this column so much, and I'm really glad you agreed to come on. Um, 
I was hopeful reading it and a little more hopeful, Tom, than, you know, you've been. I mean, you, I think you've done a really good job of taking us back to even like your coverage of the war in Lebanon and talking about what's at risk and how a democracy is not guaranteed. But as we watch Biden go to the G20 and meet with President Xi of China, you remind us of what she told Biden, right, about democracy. And I think we have that sound so we can remind our viewers. Let's play it. When he called me to congratulate me on election night, he said to me, which he said many times before, he said, democracies cannot be sustained in the 21st century. Autocracies will run the world. Why? Things are changing so rapidly. Democracies require consensus, and it takes time. And you don't have the time. He's wrong. It's really the battle of these two ideas as these two men meet. It's beautiful that you found that uh, soundbite, Poppy, you know, um, and that's the point. It's why Putin and she were always voting Trump for two reasons. One, they knew if he or his people were reelected, they'll keep our country in chaos, um, undermining in their own self-inflicted way our own democracy. And the more our democracy, our inability to transfer power um, legitimately is in, in, in peril, um, the more their refusal to transfer power uh, legitimately is in peril in, in, uh, in Russia and China. So they love to see us in chaos because then they can point to their own people. That's what you get when you have democracy. And, and neither Putin nor, nor Xi can feel very comfortable this morning. And how about adapting and being flexible? Xi, you know, playing whack-a-mole with a, with a pandemic. Um, shutting down uh, cities from 300 million people. Um, that's what happens when, um, when you can't transfer power legitimately, when, when people can't question authority. Well, so Tom, I, I think democracy had a good day. Sorry. On, that, on that note, you, President Biden is about to go meet with President Xi for the first time since Biden took office. You know, the pandemic thwarted them meeting sooner. And we've been hearing from officials in recent days about what they expect to come out of that meeting what do you think are things that Biden must bring up with the Chinese president when they sit down face to face? Well, Caitlin, it's a, it's a very important question. And, you know, I consider U.S.-China relations the most important, you know, foreign relations we have right now. And, and they're not stable. They're not healthy. Um, and we need to find a way to um, build bridges with China where possible and draw red lines where necessary. I don't want to be in a cold war with China. That's not good for us. That's not good for the world. It's not good for the world economy. Um, you know, I, I, it would make me actually uh, much more relieved, Caitlin, if, if Biden and she had a phone call every two weeks. Hmm. Hey, this is what's bothering me. This is what's bothering you. Because, um, you know, U.S.-China relations are really the core of the stability of the world over the last 40 years uh, and the economic prosperity, the absence of great power conflict. And um, we need to find a way to um, collaborate with them as much as possible, to stand up to them where necessary. So I'm glad this meeting is happening. We're not going to agree on their system or our system is, is superior, but we can and must work together because, um, uh, you know, we are the real one country, two systems, mm -hmm. uh, the U.S. And, and we need to find a way to work together. Yeah, I think it's optimistic, but it's uh, maybe a little bit overly optimistic, but I actually think it's a really good idea to speak every two weeks as that's when you get things accomplished, when you actually sit down and yeah. have conversations with people. Thomas Friedman, thank you so much. Appreciate you joining us. Have a good weekend. Great to be with you guys. Thank you. Thanks to do. Thank you.
All right, the powerful Democratic campaign chair who was defeated Tuesday night by a Republican is now blasting fellow Democrat Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We'll talk to Chris Wallace, who actually just sat down with AOC. Plus, my conversation with the one and only, uh, this says in the prompter, Whoopi Goldberg, but I mean, Whoopi. Whoopi. That's all you really need to say, right? Uh, who spent more than 20 years trying to get her new movie about Emmett Till made. Is it fair to call it a labor of love? Yeah. Then why so important, do you think? More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Progressive Democrat Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is blaming New York State's Democratic Party leadership in part and, quote, pure moderate politics for the poor showing that the state had on election night. Outgoing New York Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney, who was defeated on Tuesday night by a Republican, criticized her in response, telling The New York Times AOC had almost nothing to do with what turned out to be a historic defense of our majority, didn't pay a dollar of dues, didn't do anything for our frontline candidates except give them money when they didn't want it from her. She responded on Twitter last night saying, in part, many moderate Dems plus leaders made it clear that progressive help was not welcome or wanted. For them to blame us for respecting their approach in their districts is laughable. Joining us now is Chris Wallace, the CNN anchor and host of Who is Talking to Chris Wallace. Chris, seeing this back and forth is really remarkable between the two of them and the blame casting from each side on this. What do you make of it? Because I know you just spoke with AOC recently. Yeah, well, I did. I spoke to her yesterday and she's one of my guests on Who's Talking to Chris Wallace, which is on HBO Max now, will be on CNN on Sunday. And, you know, there were a lot of places, because uh, we talked about this, where uh, she endorsed candidates or spoke positively about candidates. Tim Ryan, running for the Senate in Ohio, said, uh, I didn't seek that endorsement. It's not helpful. Uh, Mandela Barnes, running in Wisconsin, said, uh, I'm not running to be part of the squad. Now, both of them lost. But the point she was making is, look, if candidates for their for their particular campaigns didn't want my support, felt it was going to be less helpful than more helpful, she said, that's fine. That We all run our own campaigns. Chris, let's play for our viewers just a, a little clip that was really, uh, really stood out to us from your interview with her, because you talked to her obviously yesterday is in the wake of that horrible on the speaker's husband, Paul Pelosi, and you talked about extremism and threats and concern. Here it is. Do people want both parties to move from the fringes, from the extremes, back to the center? I think a lot of people in this country may say yes, but it's important for us to dig into the substance of what that actually means. Um, as someone who is often... Uh, I think, characterized as extreme, I, of course, would object to that. I do not believe that I am as extreme uh, in the way that Marjorie Taylor Greene on the Republican side is extreme. The idea that there is an equating of believing in someone who believes in guaranteed universal health care in the United States with someone who believes that undocumented people should incur physical harm uh, are somehow in the same level of extreme is something that I would object to. What do you make of that answer, Chris? 
Well, what I make of it, and because I was asking her, is it going to be yeah. a course correction? And do you feel that you need to make a course correction? And the answer is absolutely not. When I asked her about specific policies, for instance, inflation, I said, you know, a lot of Republicans say, and it was a big issue in the campaign, that there needs to be less government spending. Her idea is to take it from the Democratic Socialist point of view, which is that corporations are price gouging, that they're making windfall profits and the government needs to move against them. Now, if you get a Republican House, not set yet, but if you get a Republican House, that's not going to happen. But clearly her feeling is that as a progressive, she still believes after this very, very close election uh, that her, she's going to go uh, full speed ahead with her progressive idea. Yeah, her response also, so what she really had like this huge tweet thread last night. She also said, as for him not seeing me, as he, a reference to him not seeing her on the campaign trail, she said, perhaps it's because he as a party leader chose not to see nor value prominent members of his party for years. And talking about whether the powerful people in her party like it or not, they're going to continue to try to, to turn out voters. Well, you know, <laughs> Patrick Maloney, uh, in, in a pretty good night for Democrats, was uh, one of the rare uh, real defeats. He, this is the guy who is the head of what's called the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Uh, he is the, he the House campaign chair. He was the person in charge of helping Democrats get elected. Uh, because of a redistricting thing, he ended up pushing another one of his Democratic incumbent colleagues out of his district. He ran in that district, and he became the first House campaign chair to be defeated by the other party since 1980. Hmm. So I have to say, and I like uh, Congressman Maloney, but there's a fair measure of uh, sour grapes in anything he says that today. I was just watching, reading this, and I thought it was a pretty civil disagreement. And isn't this what politicians should be doing? Even if they're in their own party, they should be debating issues. They were debating issues. I don't really see any harm in it. Uh, you're talking about Maloney and AOC? Yeah, and AOC, yeah. I didn't well, see any name-calling. Yeah, but there's a little, little finger-pointing, which is kind of pointless, where he's saying she should have given more money. No, I don't she disagree with I that. Promise but, you, but the go I, back I and forth is what they should be doing. That's what They should be discussing ideas and policy and did you go too far, and that's kind of, I, that's the game, isn't it? Um, I'm not sure after you lost whether you should blame your loss on, on somebody else who was nowhere in your district, and I promise you, uh, Congressman Maloney was not asking AOC to come into his district in the Hudson Valley <laughs> and, and support him more. Uh, that's the last thing he was asking for uh, on November 7th. All right. Thanks, Chris. Chris Wallace, can't wait to watch that guys. interview with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the progressive Democratic congresswoman, on Sunday night. We'll be watching it closely. Thanks for joining us this morning. All right, an underwater secret now revealed after 36 years. We'll tell you how a search team found a piece of the Space Shuttle Challenger. And one-on-one -on -one with Whoopi Goldberg. She is a producer and star of a new movie about the lynching of black teen Emmett Till in the 1950s. She says that his story still resonates to this day. You are not human to somebody else. They can come take your kids and kill them and not think twice about it. So the new movie Till tells a true story of the lynching of 14-year-old Emmett Till in 1955 through the eyes of his mother, Mamie Till Mobley. Take a look. What's wrong, Mamie? We've never been apart this long. 
He's just going to see his cousins. It's not a bad thing for him to know where he come from. Well, Chicago is all he needs to know. I don't want him seeing himself the way those people are seen down there. Those people like me? Hmm. Well, that's the legendary Whoopi Goldberg, who also produced and acts in the film. And I had a chance to talk with her about that and much more. You, over a decade, you've been wanting to do this, and then yeah. finally. Then, then uh, we were able to get the financing finally. You know, I, people said, you know, oh, who wants to see that? Nobody wants to see that again. And it's like you have to whisper to people, you've never seen it before. People think they know this story. Black folks know this story. Not a lot of black women know it because they didn't have to. But young black men who were my brother's age all knew this story because that was the caution. Don't let ha what happened to Emmett Till happen to you down there. He just wanted to go on vacation and have fun with his cousins. But if my son could just get his feet back onto the Chicago soil, he'd be one happy kid. Is it fair to call it a labor of love? Yeah. Then why so important, do you think? Because if you deal with racism, if we're talking about racism, you have to know what it actually looks like, what, what can happen because of it. A young, ordinary young man, young black man, went down to uh, Mississippi and lost his life because he whistled at a white woman. When you are not human to somebody else, they can come take your kids and kill them and not think twice about it. Emmett Lewis Hill has been found dead. Can I at least just fix him up a bit? No. They have to see it for themselves. This is, I was watching, I was like, this is an ode to Mamie Till. This yeah. is an ode to her because I, I think we heard about her strength but you see it there. Everyone is saying, you can't go there. You're risking your life. You're never going to get a couple of white men convicted mm -hmm. in Money, Mississippi mm -hmm. in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And she said, it doesn't matter. I have to show up yeah. for my son. Yeah. But in that process, she showed up for the world. For the world. And, and it's important that everybody understand that this was done for us all. She showed her son's body for everybody because she recognized that this could happen to anyone if we don't get on top of it. And the, the last part of this, uh, I'm hoping we'll be able to have Mrs. Bryant in front of a jury to ask her about this. It's important that you bring that up because you're talking about Carolyn Bryant. She is the woman who accused Emmett Till of whistling at her. This summer, there was a grand jury in Mississippi declined to indict. Mm -hmm. She's a white woman mm -hmm. who accused a 14-year-old of making advances toward her. Jury found that there was insufficient evidence to indict Carolyn Bryant of kidnapping and manslaughter. Do you think the Till family will ever see justice? Because justice may not be in the traditional way. No, it won't be in the traditional way. Do you think way. the family will see justice, or has it seen justice? I, I hope it does. I hope it does. I think, for me, I want her to either say, I don't care that that's what happened, or yes, I did it, and I'm terribly sorry, and I take responsibility. That's what I want. And this movie, I told you I watched it yeah. a couple times, yeah. because it's a very dignified movie. Yeah. And while it did anger me, 
It also filled me with pride yeah. because of the way, the, the way it was shot, the way the homes look. It reminded me of my youth, yes. the way the people carried themselves, the way they dressed, the way they spoke, the pride that they had, the family connection that they had. This movie was made for everyone because we, you know, we don't show the violence because we all know what that is. And you hear some of it. You, you cut to the darkness. It. You hear it, you know, but you don't see you know what's happened. There's a similarity to what, what's going on now, because I want to talk about what we're dealing with now with this whole lack of civility mm. in our culture. Um, you can speak to people any kind of way. Yeah. I have to say, Whoopi, you've got guts. You said, I'm out of here on Twitter. I'm not dealing with it, and it gets better. How, why did you make that decision? Because I just felt it was too sloppy for me. You know, I, I always thought Twitter was there to, you know, to talk to people and share ideas and that. And then it got really crazy and I stopped reading it. Toxic. Very toxic. And, and especially because I'm on a daytime show. So, you know, I, you know, is this and that this and, you know, it's like after a while, it's like, listen, either find something else to say to me or leave me alone. So in watching everything going on, I just thought, I, do I need to be here? I didn't, and so I left. Do you think that we will get to a point, back to a point, where people, where we see other people as human beings? Yeah, listen, all of that, we have always faced this. It's not new. Um, but somehow we as a, as a race, as a human race, rose up and said, here's what's acceptable to us, here's what's not acceptable. So Tuesday, um, you know, everyone said, well, Joe Biden, he's too old and people, his, his approval rating. What do you, what do you believe? Because it, it, it looks to me like he's winning. Well, I think the people, they may not like everything he's done, but they like a lot of what he's done. They like that he's trying to get it done. They see what he's trying to do. That's the beauty of all of this. Do you know Dr. Oz? I know Dr. Oz. I, I, don't, I don't know what happened to him. I don't know. Don't even ask me. I don't know. You know, I, I don't know what happened to a lot of really smart, good people. People I could fight and argue with about our ideas. But it was never, it was never like this. It was never toxic like this. I never told you this. But... Um, I, there, it was relatable to me, you, early on, mm -hmm. because of who I am and what I am, right? I had to sort of live, I, I created my own fantasy, mm -hmm. right, to get by. Right. And when I saw you, like, you know, this is my hair, you know, you created a fantasy character in order to survive as yeah. a child. You were basically telling my story. So I thank you for that. Thank you for telling me. <laughs> we ended that by saying, I, was, I said to her, I was talking about when she was the comedian and she would put on the fake hair and like the childhood fantasy. This is before she became, you know, the movie star that she is. But um, I was, I ended by saying thank you because I've been enjoying the view of sitting here with Whoopi Goldberg. Mm -hmm. So every time I talk to someone like Whoopi or, you know, a Brian Gumbel or whatever, I have to pinch myself. I, I love Whoopi. This, uh, I love that conversation even more than I thought I would. And I think this is why it's a gift to get to sit next to you, to you guys oh, every Bobby. morning. But really, like, that's an interview that was so important for you to do in that way and hear that from her and feel the mother's grief through her yeah. and that fight to bring it to everyone in the family. And relatable to everybody. Everybody can yeah. relate to that. It's about, yeah. it's really about family. So. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. I, look, I got to say again, Whoopi, um, 
Thank you, Whoopi. I'm sure you're going to see this if you're not watching now as you're preparing for The View, but if you see this later. But thank you for, for everything that you do for really the, the culture and the idea of um, listening to everyone. She's on a show called The View. What Whoopi does, she listens, she states her opinion. If she gets it wrong, she says, I got it wrong, I'm sorry, right? And then she moves on, and I, and I um, learn that from Whoopi. But what I also learn from Whoopi and from interviewing people, like, well, I shouldn't say interviewing, is that the difference is what we do here, and I think we have to sort of change, you know, our thinking. We, sh we shouldn't be interviewing people. Talking with them? We should them? be having conversations with people. The, what, the great thing about the great Larry King on this network was Larry was not an interviewer. Larry was a good conversationalist. He would lean and in. Through the conversation, right? he got yeah. the answers from people. And that's what I try to do with Whoopi. And that's what I try to do as I sit here every single day is have conversation with people and not interview them. So Whoopi, thank you for helping me along that journey. The best. Great conversation. All right, we've been telling you about how Russian troops are withdrawing from the key city of Kherson. CNN's Nick Robertson has been in towns that are celebrating their freedom from Russian occupation. He's joining us live right now from Ukraine. Nick, you know, your shots have been fascinating all morning, seeing these people around you celebrating. This seemed to be a lightning fast retreat. What have you been seeing? Yeah, I mean, literally in the last hour, I can say that I've seen tanks heading down this road next to me towards uh, us on that direction. Seen armored personnel carriers. We're li literally sitting uh, chatting to some troops by their armored personnel carriers at the side of the road. They were just stopping to get something to eat and suddenly they got a call, move on out. There is a lot of men and material, military material, moving on down the road to uh, towards Hersan. But I think w w what's sort of been the most uh, unexpected and harrowing as well is to be in this town of Slivirica, uh that was, that was literally um, liberated by the Ukrainian troops just yesterday and talk to the town people there. I was speaking with a 15-year-old girl there who told me in the last few days she'd been kidnapped by the Russians. They'd put a hood over her head. They'd taken her away to a house. Uh, they threatened her. They wanted to know where the Ukrainian troops were. And she said, I, I was just afraid that that these guys were going to rape me. Uh, I spoke to an old woman who was in who was in tears, tears at the side of the street, partly in relief, but she was reliving moments of her experience under the Russian occupation there. She told me that they pulled me from my car and threatened to kill me, threatened to bash my brains out. This is an old lady. An old lady must have been maybe in her in her 80s, a pensioner. They threatened to do that to her. We saw people hugging in the street, seeing friends and relatives that they hadn't seen for so long. There's a sort of a quiet euphoria of the freedom, but it's come all of a sudden. And it's come all of a sudden because the Russians have retreated quickly and more Ukrainian troops are moving further towards liberating the town of uh, Hershom. And we're told by Ukrainian officials that they are close. It's not done yet, but they are close to taking uh, Hershom. Wow. It's remarkable. The first major city that fell to Russian forces. We are watching it closely. Nick Robertson, I know you are. Thank you for being on the ground. We'll get back to you. Just a few moments ago, President Biden, there you see him uh, as a just Air Force One just landed in Egypt, uh, where this administration is looking for major movement and some kind of victory fighting climate change.
And votes are still being counted in Arizona and Nevada. We are live on the ground in both states. We're getting closer. We're not there yet. We'll bring you the latest. Gotta love you. Moments ago, President Biden arrived in Egypt for the United Nations Climate Summit, known as COP27. You are going to see him meeting with the Egyptian president just a few moments from now. He is also set to deliver a speech in front of world leaders gathered there. He wants to tout a landmark climate law that passed in the United States. But a lot of those leaders, especially the ones of developing nations, they want to talk about money. They have been criticizing the United States and other industrialized nations for causing climate change, they say. They want reparations. Biden is set to talk about new plans to further cut U.S. methane emissions from the oil and gas sector and also some new climate initiative partnerships. Well, this morning, votes are still being counted, and we don't know what the balance of power will be in Washington. But we know what history tells us, and history has shown that the party in power almost always loses seats in either the House or the Senate or both. So how will the results of this midterm shape the direction of our country for the next two years and beyond? Joining us, we are very lucky to have this morning Pulitzer Prize winning presidential historian and New York Times bestselling author Doris Kearns Goodwin. Her latest book is phenomenal, Leadership in Turbulent Times. Doris, thank you very much. Oh, I'm so glad to be with you. What a moment to get to have you, right? So I want to talk about what it means to have democracy on the ballot, really. It was in the midterms. And if, if you can... Talk to us in the context of what Lincoln said, right, as the Civil War was beginning about the question that the country must settle. I think that applies now, no? Without even a question, it applies now. I mean, what is democracy? I think sometimes we forget the simple definition. It's a system of government when people can vote their leaders in or throw them out, which means you have to accept when you're thrown out. And you have to accept loss. The peaceful transition of power old George Washington started is critical. Lincoln said the central idea when the Civil War was starting was that the idea was, can a government exist, continue to exist, if the people who don't accept the election, the Democratic South, decide to break up the union because they lost. He said, if that's true, then we have no democracy as an absurdity. That's what we were facing now. The people who lost the election would not accept it. And it's a fundamental problem if it's not democracy. But people came out and voted on this. That's what happened in the midterms. Yeah, it really did. And what surprised us Tuesday night, right, was that we thought it was going to be this red wave. And it obviously was not. A lot of people got that wrong. What did you see is is what really motivated voters? Because we looked at polls, the inflation was top of the mind for a lot of them, but it clearly wasn't the only thing that they prioritized. You know, there's certain times in history when you think about something larger than yourself. FDR Mm -hmm. talked about that. During the midterms in 1942, people were really upset about having only one, one one cup of coffee a day. That's all they were allowed because the coffee beans had to go somewhere else. They only had five gallons of gasoline. But he said at some point they're going to understand that they have to sacrifice for the home front, for the war front. I think that's what happened here. People understood there's something wrong about people who don't accept the loss in an election. They were who on the ballot, those election deniers. And that's who Trump put on the ballot. That was the litmus test for them to be there. They know it's wrong for your kid not to accept a loss. They know it's wrong if you say, as President Trump did, um, I will win if I win, it's up to me, but if I lose, it's somebody else's fault. There's fundamental human qualities that I think struck a chord in all those people who came out. 44% said democracy was the important thing for them. We didn't guess that. We thought the short-term things were what concerned. I think it's a great moment when you can care about your nation and care about democracy. The simple question is, where are we when it comes to our nation, our democracy? Is there, you're a historian, is, can we look back on a time that gives us hope that, that we got through that was similar to 
through their stories? Oh, we've always gotten through tough times. I mean, I think that's what history, that's why I love history so much. I mean, just think about what people who were living through the Civil War felt, what people who were living through the Great Depression felt, what people felt in those early days of, of World War II when it didn't look like the Allies and democracy was going to win. And they didn't know what we know now. They didn't know how the story would end. They didn't know that the Civil War would end with the Union restored and emancipation secured. They didn't know the Depression would come to an end with the mobilization of war. They didn't know the Allies would win World War II. So so they lived with the anxiety we're coming through now, but we came through each one of those times with greater strength. And I think there may have been a moment, what we saw in the midterms, where people were voting what they knew was wrong, what they knew was right. And there's still a lot more that has to happen. There's gerrymandering, there's too much money in politics, there's the division that's still there. But finally, people got to vote last night. I thought after January 6th, that line in the sand would be drawn. And it wasn't. I, I still can't believe that. As an historian, I thought people will say this was the moment when the chaos ended. And then I thought it would be last summer when the hearings were so powerful. But this was the first time people could vote on what they saw happening with these election deniers and making a central point in this whole election that people who supported the, the lie should be the people who were voted in, regardless of their experience or anything else they were put on the ballot. And people said no. My favorite book of yours, other than Wait Till Next Time, because, you know, Brooklyn and your dad, is Team of Rivals. So as we look forward to maybe a split government and the president saying, um, I'm going to work with Republicans, you know, talking to McCarthy, what, what, what do you think will happen? I mean, he talks, President Biden talks a lot about Lincoln. I think it'll depend a lot on what the Republicans decide to do if they do win the House. I mean, the interesting thing that happened, we can look back at Clinton. When Clinton lost that huge election in 1994, he then was able to make some compromises with Gingrich. Welfare reform took place. He wins that 1996 election. And then he comes back into power. And then they go too far and they impeach him. In 1998, he's one of those people that defies predictions that the Democrats win the House. And they win seats in one of those off-seat years. So it depends on how extreme the Republicans go, what they're going to do. Are they going to hold a whole bunch of impeachment things? Are they going to try and make some, some compromises on things? As well as what President Biden, who says he's willing to do these things, as long as it's not Medicare, Social Security, and certain things that he's drawn a line in the sand on. Thanks for giving us hope. we got to have hope. That, there's no other choice, right? By the way, that's a cool shirt. Thank you. It's so, my people shirt. <laughs> it's very I love it. Thank you. It's so great to Doris, see you. I'm so glad to be you with on. you. Thank you very much. The one, the only, Doris Kearns. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Oh, okay, now this. A piece of debris from a dark day in American history has just been discovered deep in the Atlantic Ocean. We'll tell you what it is next. A search team looking for a World War II airplane that was lost at sea got quite the surprise when they actually found something else on the bottom of the Atlantic. A piece of debris from the space shuttle Challenger that, of course, to the nation's horror, exploded after taking off in 1986. CNN's space and defense correspondent Kristen Fisher joins us now. Kristen, you know, obviously these explorers, I imagine, were pretty shocked when they found this piece of the Challenger. They couldn't believe it, Caitlin. And what tipped them off to it was if you're looking at that video that they were taking as they were filming this discovery, you can see uh, kind of those white square tiles. And what those are are the 
heat shield tiles. Those are that really distinctive, really critical part of the space shuttle that would form the underbelly of the space shuttle. And those heat shield tiles would protect it from the high temperatures uh, on re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere. Of course, uh, this Challenger mission never even made it fa that far. Uh, it was discovered actually back in May by a team led by Mike Barnett. They were putting together a film uh, for the History Channel. They weren't quite sure what it was. They thought they knew what it was. They brought it to a former NASA astronaut. He thought it was Challenger. They then brought it to NASA, and NASA confirmed it in August. So now, uh, you know, Caitlin, the big question is, you know, what is NASA going to do with this? Right now it's just, you know, on the bottom of the ocean floor uh, off the coast of Florida. So this, by law, remains the property of the U.S. government. Uh, but NASA says they're still trying to figure out a way what to do with it uh, to honor the legacy of Challenger and the seven astronauts that died on that fateful day back in 1986. It's really fascinating. I can't wait to see what they do do with it. Kristen Fisher, thank you. All right, President Biden is meeting with Egypt's president right now. He just landed there. He is about to speak at this big COP27 climate conference in Egypt. We'll bring you there next. Time now for Heroes on Veterans Day. Meet a combat vet who helps others, other wounded warriors, use art as an outlet for their pain and trauma. Richard Casper's organization is called Creative Vets. Art is so emotional and vulnerable. It's what allows you to understand that it's okay to not be okay. My artwork is a presentation of some of the guys that we lost when we were deployed. They built a complete mock-up of a casket. This is Josh. Hey, dude. Josh What's up, Josh? Most of the veterans have never really told their story to anybody before. They will shoulder the burden, as they already have done. And I try to explain to them in the beginning, it's going to be easier to tell your story once you create your art piece, because you're not going to be talking about you. You're going to be talking about your art piece and focus on it. There's something breaking out of me. I know I want them to know that art's an option for healing. I think they're all heroes. So you can go to CNNHeroes.com for more. Thank you to everyone who has served this Veterans Day. Amen. Absolutely. Have a good, safe weekend. That's it for us. Have a great weekend, everybody. See you Monday. CNN Newsroom is now. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.